everyone. Welcome to Completely Beatles. My name is David Dedrick. Hi, I'm Ian Boothby. And we're both from the uh, Sneaky Dragon podcast. Just like to throw that in there. And today we're joined by a guest. This is our second show with a guest. And since we were uh, doing the second White Album show, I thought it would be good to bring in another voice. So we're just not repeating ourselves from last, last, the last episode where we were, we're already talking about the White Album. So joining us today is David M., a longtime Vancouver musician. He played in the in the sort of, uh, what would you call yourself, college rock band, no fun. Would you say that's what? accurate? Well, you don't want to we be called college? We were around before there were colleges. Okay, <laughs> before college. It was just roving bands of people like fighting off the Indians when oh. we started. <laughs> also a Beetle Nut and uh, an aficionado of the White Album. In fact, you would say that it's your favorite Beatles album. It's my favorite album of all of all time there you go now so, david is there something be- that no fun would be known as like if you were like yeah. to follow it up yeah. with something you, you call them okay well, thank you for bringing that up so yeah no fun we're known as the beatles of surrey so uh i guess you because you feel such a close connection to the beatles why don't you explain what surrey is as well oh because some people <laughs> might be listening and going like oh, oh it's like surrey, surrey in England. England. i yeah. see there you go surrey is uh is a municipality of uh of vancouver it's uh here in if you live in vancouver or if you don't we live in an area called the greater what's it called the greater vancouver regional district the gvrd sure. and that's made up of several municipalities and when one of them being we're surrey, greater than something what we're yes, talking about is, is surrey that's right surrey uh traditionally was on the other side of the river and in the past it was kind of where the farms were and it got a reputation as a place where like hicks and yokels lived and uh what surrey has done since then is done its best to live up to that reputation and so, uh, let's yeah. back this up and say that Dave and I are from North Delta, which is the twin brother slash sister of Surrey. Yes. You know, you we go. had our share of guys with goats in their front lawn. So, uh, no judgment there at all. But, uh, that's, that's a little context. We, we always start with context and a little bit of teasing. And David has now left the room. Okay. Well, that's fine. We can do the show without him. Um, we can move on. Oh, no. He's come back. He sat down. He's having a drink. And, uh, here we go. So, um, I guess we'll get started. So, do you do you want to say anything about White Album before we go on, or you just want to kind of incorporate it into the into the, the discussion, David? It's the best album ever made. Okay, that's what uh, Danny Korchmar, the guitar player, uh, with the Fugs. No, Danny Cooch, also known as, uh, played with uh, yeah. James Taylor and those guys. Yeah, he did played, a lot of sessions. He played in the Fugs as well. Did he? Yeah. Oh, okay. That attended his junction. Fair enough. Well, okay. Well, in, guys, stop fighting. In around the eighties, he's he Don't said have this Dave on Dave violence. He said about the White Album, "You still can't buy a better record." He said that. I would, even though it's not my favorite album. When I was writing the show, when I was writing the last episode's show description, I had to say that it was the Beatles' masterpiece. And I think that's true. Like I, you know, even though I think Revolver is a better album, just per- personally speaking, I think if you look at it objectively. The White Album is like an incredible achievement. Well, when, when people knew the Beatles were doing a double album, yeah. there was a lot of excitement because people were looking to the Beatles, what are they going to do next? Yeah, right? yeah. And, and then the, it was there weren't that many double albums either at, in, in pop music or rock music at that time. Yeah, Blonde well, on Blonde, Blonde Freak yeah, Out. Is, yeah, well, Blonde on Blonde's almost two years before that. Before White Album. Before White Album. Yeah. But, but just the, it wasn't that common. Yeah. Uh, and for a rock band, for them to be doing it, it was exciting. Yeah. So, now yeah. you bought it actually when it came out. 
No, I had it bought for me for Christmas. It came out like when it, they started playing songs on the radio, and uh, what I had for a radio was uh, an AM radio with a seventy-eight player built into it, and I had alligator clips connected to the uh, to the speaker terminals inside the the actual speaker, the speaker itself. On the you know you turn you open the the door and you see the back of the actual speaker and you connect the alligator clips and run a plug into my little mono cassette recorder and they'd say we're going to be playing another song from the new Beatles uh, uh, album next so I would record them so I heard a whole bunch of so- the songs that way but I didn't actually have a copy of it till Christmas of '68 my brother gave it to me as a Christmas gift and it's a great Christmas gift. Uh, you know, it, it's because it has, you know, posters and pictures mm-hmm. and it smells good. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the paper, the, the, the good smell quality like an paper. Apple? Well, well, it, it's that paper, that good quality, glossy paper. Mm, you don't get that using. with MP3s. You don't no. get the smell. You do, you do not. <laughs> and, and it was great, you know, four sides, all different. And all I had to play it on at the time, and this, I, I, I know the mono versus stereo uh, uh, thing, especially with the White Album, uh, you know, there's a lot of differences between the mono and stereo versions. But all I heard it on for the first year was a mono record player that would sound better if you shut the lid while you were playing the record. <laughs> so, it, but it's still great. So I, what I was listening to was folded down mono, and it's still great. I yeah. mean, endlessly playable. So much so that I wore out that first copy, and I got it for Christmas again in 1969, a fresh copy. <laughs> so, uh, it's, you know, it, it presses all my buttons. It's the Beatles, it's, you know, a big fancy package, it's Christmas, it's everything. Yeah. So, you know, obviously I'm not being reasonable here. It's not you know it's not like i i don't know that beethoven is better somehow than any popular music but it is it's your it's a young love it's a special young love it's a at the right time well a lot of other people feel the same way so so that's in in my in my actually our our group no fun the beatles of surrey which (laughs) they they called us that uh, john mackey called us that in the vancouver sun paper like 30 years ago that's where it actually yeah. comes from. And it caught on because people are afraid of Surrey in this area. So, <laughs> you know, the Beatles of Surrey is kind of a joke and kind of an insult, but also not. Yeah. So it's that. So, like, we've done our own white album, as all rock groups eventually do. They all do it yeah. eventually. They go, this is our white album. Yeah. Um, and ours was called Snivel. Great and it album? was two cassettes. So four sides of cassette uh, in a box, mm-hmm. a white box, that had uh, inside, it had uh, th- uh, two photos of me and uh, Paul Leahy, the other, the other person in No Fun, as well as a picture of a bunch of other pictures. So it sort of resembles the uh, uh, poster that comes with the White Album. And then there was also a book inside with uh, pictures and lyrics. Yeah. Uh, so it, that is our white album but then later we in uh, 92 we put out a sort of a compilation with uh, previously unreleased and some new stuff on it but it basically has our hits on it like mm. be like us is the first song um 
Let It Be Like Us is actually the last song, which is <laughs> Let It Be done crossed with uh, uh, long before Danger Mouse did that, the Grey album, <laughs> we mated uh, Be Like Us with Let It Be to come up with Let It Be Like Us. So, um, uh, and, But the cover of it, okay, is it looks like the Beatles' White Album. It looks like this. I'm holding it up. I'm sure yeah. they can see this. Sure. Um, Those of you that are getting our video podcast, right. which doesn't exist yet. <laughs> so the, uh, like the, the, the front cover of the Beatles' White Album uh, the Beatles is embossed white on white, mm -hmm. and using the same typeface, our uh, our album, uh, the Beatles of Surrey, it says of Surrey, not the Beatles. It says <laughs> yeah. of Surrey. Yeah. And then underneath where it says the Beatles, there now okay. When I first got the White Album, two Christmases in a row, there was no number on it. There wasn't. I don't know if that was a Canadian thing or yeah. whether all North America didn't apply. Just like the, you know, the the standard now for authenticity of the White Album is the records come out the top, like this. Yeah, because that's what the British ones did. Yeah, but I feel the, like you're a magician. I've got to like say he's right. It, this uh, what he's got in front of it does come out the top. That is correct. And we've never met before. Oh, oh yeah, th yeah. This is like magic on the radio. But mine, my original copies did not. They just came out like normal yeah. records. But anyways, uh, the, the standard now is it, there's a number, and it says number like N-O yeah. uh, with a little line under the O, and then there's a number, like uh, each one is individually numbered. Now, on the Beatles of Surrey, what, it's, what it is, it says N-O with a little line under the O, so it says no in our case. Um, and then there's a number, and the number is 062114. 06 is F in the alphabet, 21 is U, and 14 is 14 is N. So it acts, the front cover of our thing, the Beatles of Surrey, actually does say the Beatles of Surrey. <laughs> and then the rest of it replicates, like the, the edge, it's all the same typeface and everything. Let me uh, recommend yeah. people try to find that. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, well, and you just, find, <laughs> just look up No Fun on, on the YouTube. You'll find something and, you know, be like we had to back in the day. Yeah. Go search for the darn you gotta, thing. You gotta Everything look. can't be presented to you on a plate sure. that's the internet. That's well, right. You'll enjoy it more if you search it out. I, I have Indiana a Jones. Home, but that's, that's just me. <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> there you go. You know, so. That's, that's, he has the masters. Now, do you want to do you want to talk about uh, singles first, or do we yeah, want to go into the album? Let's start with the singles because I, I then want to find out what was in this album. I want to hear all the posters. I want to hear all the business. We'll go into that. We will. We'll Good. go into that. Well, I'm, the white, I'm putting a request that we actually talk about that. Well, yeah. look, the we'll white album, just like with Sgt. Pepper, they did singles. I mean, that's the thing. Sgt. Pepper could have had uh, Strawberry Fields Forever and uh, and um, Penny Lane. Yeah, on it. For, there's no the, the only reason it didn't was well no we'll put that out as a single it, you know that's how cavalier they were about how great they were was well the album will be great <laughs> they, too just, they were they were kind of choked that they had to give up both songs but yeah, yeah so what came what they were pretty brilliant. hey Dave what came out before the white album on well before Apple? the before the white album what came out yeah the first Apple release was actually hey Jude uh, revolution the the double a sided single uh, well, not. yeah well, it's a double no, a side no revolution had the white Apple it's still, on the label. But it's, it's still considered a double A side. Maybe, was it not released that way in North America? It was in, well, they, it was they in played, Britain. And they in, played uh, everything the Beatles yeah. put out like crazy. So it may as well have it, been a double A side. Because yeah. uh, 
But Hey think, Jude was the A side. Well, Hey Jude was deaf. But well, but I mean, it was the same with um, with We Can Work It Out, Day Tripper. I mean, that was not that was a double A as well. There was no. Well, I think that was a double A. How so. many double A's hmm. were done in total? Not hmm, to put prob- you on the spot. Well, I would say three because I do think that Hey Jude Revolution was a double A. But if you say not, I have to. Well, no, just uh, they played both sides mm-hmm. like crazy. Yeah. But of course, Hey Jude being like seven minutes and something. <laughs> Uh, just the fact that they were playing it, it's because it was the Beatles. Plus, it's great. Plus, I mean, to me, maybe that's my favorite single of all time as yeah. well. Now, were there any mm-hmm. other singles around that time that were that long that were playing on the radio? Uh, yeah, um, the uh, Jimmy Webb, um, Richard MacArthur's Harris, Park. MacArthur's Park is two, oh, okay, yeah. two seconds shorter than, than Hey Jude. And Jimmy Webb suggested uh, in this interview I read with him in Q Magazine that uh, the Beatles intentionally cut Hey Jude to be two seconds longer than MacArthur Park <laughs> just to have the longest single at oh, that time. Of course time. they did. Of course they did. Yeah. Why wouldn't they? Because yeah. they're the Beatles. It they, also seems like it'd be nice for the DJs of the time. They can go and, you know, yes, pee if they want to that. or something, you know, get some work done, do their taxes. Yeah. When I know, was a nice long song. When I was a teenager, it was Sky Pilot by Eric Burden. Oh, Animals. Yeah, yeah. That was the uh, go out and have a smoke song. <laughs> that for sure was it. But what's, cu- what's curious to me about um, Hey Jude, let's just go a little bit off topic, is is if you have something like James Brown, Cold Sweats, Part 1 and 2, so you have the song on both sides of the of the single. And I always assumed that was for fidelity. So was there a loss of fidelity having Hey Jude as a full seven-minute song on one side of a 45? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was curious. Course, well, there, yeah, of course there would be. Yeah. Like, I mean, we did uh, EPs, seven-inch EPs. This would be a more extreme um, version, but we did seven-inch EPs back in the 70s. Yeah. And we put the the first one we did, uh, we put too much on. There was like two full length songs plus one or two like minute long things. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's one song in particular, uh, Planet, which has a lot of synthesizer in it. Yeah. And if you hear it like on tape or on the CD that I have, um, <laughs> then it, it, there's all these overtones and high sort of, there's all this stuff going on yeah. up top, and it totally cut it off. There was just no room for it. Okay. So you're, I mean, you can do a certain amount while you're cutting the record, yeah. but there, there's a real limit. I mean, the, the rule of thumb for 45s, I think, is don't go over four minutes, or you're going to start losing volume and uh, um, uh, dynamic range. Okay, then. So, yeah. But, you know, the Beatles, they, they you know, you listen to the 45 and it sounds impeccable. So there, there's they ways knew, around. They knew how to cut it. Yeah. There's yeah. probably people at EMI who knew how to yeah. work that. Work it's not machines. that dynamic either compared mm. to like, like something like if it was as dynamic as Revolution that's on the other side. Yeah. They'd have had a problem. Okay. If, if Revolution was seven minutes long, <laughs> there would have been a problem. Well, it was. Um, so, Okay. Well, uh, it's obviously composed by Paul McCartney. I think that's pretty well known. And composed for John Lennon's son, uh, Julian. Jules. So it was originally Hey Jules. It started as Hey Jules, and he said he changed it to Hey Jude to make it more country and western, which uh, makes me laugh when I... That always makes... It was kind of we talked about last time about making ro- Rocky Raccoon, making it from Sassoon to Raccoon to make it sound more country and yeah, western. Yeah, that common cowboy name. The common cowboy raccoon. name, Raccoon. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's just that weird European... It gets confusing because there's so many cowboys named Raccoon. You're like, which raccoon are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, exactly. Rocky Raccoon. Understood. It, Thank you. Please just Billy tell me the, the full name. Is it Billy the Raccoon? Yeah. Raccoon Bill? We just don't know. So it was... Uh, Annie Raccoon Oakley? 
Yeah. So yeah, it's just that weird misapprehension of what makes something country and Western that's that's interesting to me. Well, our interpretation of what uh, well, British things make British people laugh, so it makes sense that their idea of what Western things were at the time would be wrong as well. What What's endearing is that McCartney brought the song to Lennon, and he was he felt it wasn't finished. He had lines in it like "The movement you need is on your shoulder," which he just thought was nonsense, and he just kind of just kind of brought you know you know just kind of threw in there to to fill in. Well, he worked on the lyrics, and Lennon was like, nope, you're done. That, that's finished. That's a perfect line. You cannot do anything better than that. You know, and he just felt that you've, you know, and to Lennon, even later, you know, in his anti-Paul days, he felt like that was Paul's greatest song, you know, and he never, he never put it down like he would put down something like Honey Pie. Well, there is a thing about Hey Jude. Uh, the last verse, just before it goes into the na-na-na-na-na part, to me, that's... Beatle interplay that that's probably the the finest example of Beatle interplay in the modern Beatle era so you hear them you hear them harmonizing you hear them singing back and forth yeah you hear you hear uh, uh, John say uh, in hell <laughs> which was that's a first for yes. AM radio at, uh, at 258 yeah. if you want to listen carefully yeah John, but, but just the whole he's sound. commenting on a, a vocal he fluffed a vocal line so he makes a little uh, and as this isn't an explicit podcast you just heard a beep probably yeah, just so then. there's a beep yeah yeah but those words but are... if you played <laughs> if you played hey jude you wouldn't have to beep it because no one notices it's yeah. just it's just you know those crazy englishmen making noises with their mouth again <laughs> uh but but the just the interplay of the band all the instruments and the vocals uh, you listen to that verse, and it's different from all the other verses, mm. and it suggests that they're they're leading up to something, yeah. which of course they are. Yeah, uh, uh, quite magnificent. <laughs> I mean, to me, to me, that's you know, that's that's the Beatles. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, just just pure magic. Just you know, it's only rock music, but here you go, pure ma- magic. The Beatles. Here's the last verse. It's going to be pure magic. <laughs> we'll do something. Don't worry about it. It's, it's Listen. In, it's interesting how intentional the song was to me. Like, it was conceived as a single. It was never thought to be an album track. As soon as Paul wrote it, they knew it was a single. They they knew they wanted an orchestra, so they knew they were going to be going to Trident Studios because at that time, Abbey Road... Well, they Road, went there to record it in the first place. Though they did rehearsals at Abbey Road. They did two days of rehearsals at Abbey Road. Then no. they moved. Then they moved everything. Then they went to Trident but to do the actual recording. They, they, were, they recorded yeah, Trident, yeah, yeah. Not just and they'd, the they'd already booked the time there. Like so, they knew they were going to go there. They they did rehearsals. They they did two days of rehearsals on the song, and uh, you know Paul made George mad by not letting him do his echoing phrases on the guitar to Hey Jude, which we know. Hey Jude, bam bam, <laughs> don't make it back, bam 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 bam. No George, <laughs> stop it. Um, which, but you, we knew it rankled George because George brings it up in Let It Be. There's a scene in when they're at Shepperton where George, just before he quits the band, uh, where he's arguing with Paul and he's, you know, I'll play if you want me to play, or I won't play if you want me to play, or if you don't want yeah. me to play, and he's. He's obviously well, he's just, and Paul's just seething because he's like, y- you can't admit I was right about Hey Jude. Just grow up, man. There's so much, so much, so much bad feeling at that point. They kind meditate of... some more. <laughs> um, yeah, is meditation that great? Mike Love was a was a uh, transcendental meditation guy. He's no, he's no model citizen. Um, not everyone that meditates uses it. it it's it, we're not well, anti meditation. Well, they would say policy. that's why we need meditation. 
you know, because <laughs> so, you know, we're bad. And so. you don't know how much worse they would have been without it. Uh-huh. That's the other thing. Yeah. They oh, used to play this song to death at our school because we went to St. Jude's. Okay. So they play this all the time. So the nuns Constant. on their guitars? The nuns, the nuns would, yes. Yeah. The nuns would play with their guitars and castanets. Because <laughs> some of them knew, only, knew, only knew castanets, so they would be... <laughs> Clack, 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 clack. So I always remember Castanets that the songs that doesn't exist. That and, and, and brutal beatings. Oh, yeah. Okay. At least they weren't hitting you in the hand with rulers. That came later. Come that on. came later. It wasn't It wasn't with a ruler, just be, with a bare let's hand. Let's be fair. Hand. They did it in time with the song. <laughs> so at least it was rhythmic. Um, what's, the other, when, they were, when they were doing rehearsals at Abbey Road, it was, the rehearsals were filmed for a, um, for a documentary called Music, with an exclamation mark, uh, for the National Music Council of Great Britain. So there's color footage of the Beatles rehearsing three of them anyway, because at that time George is in the, is in the, uh, he's meditating. He's in the control yeah, room. Oh, he's yeah. in the control room. Oh, I hate Paul. Oh, I hate Paul. Seething that he couldn't play his his <laughs> Whatever guitar mantra part. works for you. So yeah, so they did the two they did the two days of rehearsals, and the reason they wanted to go to Trident was because it had eight track, which Abbey Road didn't, as far as they knew. Abbey Road did have eight track. We talked about this last time. Yeah. Abbey Road had eight track. But it was sitting in this guy's office who was like the kind of, he was the tester of all the equipment. And if it didn't pass his exacting standards, it couldn't be put into the, They're into the control standards. rooms. They had good standards. They had very good standards. Cool, yeah. Well, I mean, the guy wasn't wrong. I mean, the, it, it, apparently it, uh, there's a problem with the overdub, like dubbing things in. It didn't come off the sink head. So it didn't, it was hard to control how you were syncing. And then it didn't allow very speeding, which was the Beatles, I guess, were kind of out of, coming out of their very speeding, um, phase like during sergeant pepper and magical mystery tour and revolver but you know it's still a useful facility to have on a on a machine and if you can't control control it so i could see his point why I he was, didn't want to like i was put just it in listening to uh on, on one of the bootlegs i have there's uh the uh brass version of uh, uh strawberry fields forever okay that's got the count in one, two, because it's it's, it's actually yeah. <laughs> that's how how the voice sounds. Yeah. Uh, because they had to slow it down yeah. to match up the uh, when they spliced it all together, it had to be all in the same uh, tune, the same. Yeah, way, so, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm sure if you listen to something like Rain, you'd have the same experience. If you listen to it in the in the proper uh, time, in the pro- at the actual recorded speed, rather than the speed that it's was it's played back to us. Um, yeah, so. So the reason they wanted to go to Trident, well, because they had the A-track, and the reason they wanted the A-track is because they had this plan to use, you know, this big, a big orchestra. They had 36 instruments. And so when they did, uh, the orchestral overdubs for, for a day in the life for Sgt. Pepper, it was a nightmare. They had to sync two four tracks together in order to do the mix downs and have room to put all the, you know, have the orchestra on, on the, on the mix as well. So when they and, found out they had the A-track, were they upset by that? That, uh, they'd been, have to go through all well, it's not really recorded if they're upset. I mean, they certainly, when they found out they had it, I mean, that day it left Francis Thompson's office and it ended up in, con- yeah, in okay. Studio 2 in, in the control room. So. Hey, hey Jude sort of sounds like it was recorded somewhere else. And I, I, I mean, it's great. It's yeah. great. And there's nothing bad in any way about anything about it. Mm-hmm. But it does, you know, the drums and stuff. It sounds a, a little, and and it sounds well, a little. It's bit, not the same engineers. Uh, yeah, it's mm. a little. It's a little more indistinct, maybe. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe it makes the ending better. The 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 yeah. forcefulness of it. I don't know. But it definitely, uh, you know, uh, always sounded somewhat. I mean, it's it sounds different from 
revolution on the other side, of course. But but it sounds different. Well, what's interesting is when the uh, when they brought the tapes back to Abbey Road, and it had all been mixed and EQ'd and, and tried, and when they brought it back to Abbey Road, and I can't remember if it was Ken Scott or Ken Thompson, one of the Kens who worked in, worked at Abbey Road, was listening to it, and he said to George Martin, he said, this sounds terrible. This sounds awful. And he's like, what? He's like, what? Like, and he like called the other Beatles in, and like, and this guy was just like, uh oh, now I'm in for it. And all the Beatles came in, and he's like, George, George Martin says, Ken thinks this sounds terrible. Thinks Hey Jude sounds terrible. And they're like, what? They're all mad, you know. And, and then they played it back, and they had to agree it sounded terrible. So they had to spend all this time trying to re EQ it to try and get get a better sound. Yeah, so that may be part of it too. Yeah, no matter what you listen to it on, like uh, the 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 latest CD sounds, you know, like just great. Yeah. Uh, but it always sounds. A little bit like fiddled with in a way that often uh, they didn't usually sound it didn't usually sound like there was something between you and them okay in quite the way yeah that that one does just recording wise and it's weird because they used trident quite a bit like apple records did they recorded mary hopkin there they recorded jackie lomax george was producing well, I think there they, yeah, they probably figured out well those guys from abbey road we now know what they want to hear so let's yeah. let's fix this and, okay yeah. and fixed it that would make sense but i i mean it's not that it's not hey jude like you know a side of the greatest single ever or anything <laughs> the, this isn't even like quibbling it's just yeah it's just a comment yeah, yeah. We're, we're not we know you're not uh, yeah, well it's like saying how you know that it's seven minutes long yeah it's, it's just something to say about it <laughs> um what I what, what I thought was interesting, well, they had thirty six they had thirty six instruments for for the for the recording, but because Trident Studios was really long and narrow, the trombones had to go at the front so they wouldn't poke people in the back while they're <laughs> while they're were producing the song or while they're recording. Which I enjoy that. It's always a problem and with trombones. Yeah. All the musicians stayed, but one musician would refuse to stay and clap his hands to what he said Paul McCartney's bloody song, and he just left. Was he, he a tromboner? He, I don't know if he was a tr tromboner. I don't know who he was. He's upset at having to be there at the front and was like uh, he's respecting the trombone. He was a terrible snob. That's he thought it was about. a union violation. Maybe, maybe that's why you think it sounds a little wrong, is that one guy be, clapping yeah. his hands was like, this what is, is just it? one off. He, he's yeah. driving me nuts. Yeah. Well, he's, no, he's just he's missing. There's only 35 That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, this is a, a 36 clapper <laughs> situation. Next time, next time I hear it, I'm going to clap. Yeah. And I, I see if it doesn't fix it. 72 hands clapping. So let's turn the let's turn the single over the greatest right. single of all time according to David, uh, uh, to its in my opinion A and or B side. Check uh, our alligator clips, make sure they're still which, connected. Which you're right in a way because it is the B side in the sense that when you flip it over, it has the the inside of the apple. Like we were saying, this was the first apple mm -hmm. single Beetle, release. Well, first Beatles apple. First Beatles single. apple, yeah. Uh, no, I think it was the first because those well, were the days one came of, out. Four, they put out four. But those were the days came out two days after Hey Jude, so I don't think it came out before. But so I, I, thought, I always thought it was one of the four that they put out initially. They, they didn't come out simultaneously, though. They, they were staggered in the release because it was Hey Jude, Those Were the Days, Sour Milk Sea, and then Thingummy Bob, the Black Dyke Mills Band, or whatever it's called. Not that kind of dyke. <laughs> no, not the kind that's in a, that but keeps I, water back. I've got, I've got an Apple single of uh, Golden Slumbers by Trash. It's, it's an Apple one? Yeah. I think I might have that one, too, actually. Sorry. <laughs> now, if you had Marmalade doing uh, Obladi Oblada, that would be nice. <laughs> I, you know, I think there are... We're having Beatle a day off, no, right? No, I think... I'm trying to think of what it would be. Wasn't... 
Wasn't there like a Mary Hopkins single, like maybe the one uh, Goodbye and whatever the other side was, where both of them were the green apple? And that's how they indicated double A side? I'll have to look because I have that one at home. I think I think they did. I think, I think those of you listening at home right now, or walking around, uh, check on the device you're listening to this and yeah. see if that's the case. Oh, okay, yeah, I guess we. Dave could. has to wait till tomorrow. I'm gonna go home, no, but, or later tomorrow. on today. Home, but, but you can do it instantly, so feel free to pause and check that out. I will open up my Wurlitzer ju- jukebox, and no, just joking, I don't have a Wurlitzer jukebox. Okay, so uh, the next song would be Revolution Number Three. Let's give it its proper title. <laughs> well, no, it's the original one. <laughs> You know, it's like you know what's what's the standard now? They go, uh, um, don't they? Don't you kids today say like version one point zero or something? Yeah. That's what kids yeah. say. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what so, kids say. So yeah, so really, revolution mm-hmm. is revolution. Yeah, and then revolution one is like revolution one point zero. Yeah, that's <laughs> fair. Yeah. That's how it felt at the time. But you know, for someone like me who didn't grow up then, I I don't look at it that I have a different sense of, of the context of how how the songs songs Explain work. Explain you know? your context, Dave. Well, I just mean that you know, like for for David, he he's looking at it historically. Like By the way, I'm going to call you David and you Dave just fine. just to make this clear. That's Dave, fine. explain your context. So, well, just for David when he he was there historically, like the you know the Dave, revo- David the, was there historically. The, With the dinosaurs, the, the, the Hey Indians, Jude. Yeah. That's right. The Hey Jude Revolution single came out. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone listened to it to death, and then White Album came out, and then everyone went, "Oh, there's another song called Revolution on oh, here." Oh, I like Actually, that there's first two Revol- other songs. Oh, fantastic! It must be yeah. a variation on the one song I love so much. Yeah. Let's give it a listen. That's right. What the hell? <laughs> and then, uh, so, so for me, I probably heard the White Album. No, I wouldn't say I heard the White Album, but I didn't hear them in any way that wasn't like close to simultaneous to each other. Do you know what I mean? Like it was all part of one big mix of Beatles things. I don't have like a a historical continuity to the Beatles in that way. Pretty much the Beatles were wallpaper and there's the odd songs that I discovered that I never heard before that were so exciting to discover because they weren't oral wallpaper. But you know Well when when okay, when when uh Hey Jude and Revolution came out, uh one thing that happened was they made a short film. These are both on the Beatles anthology. Yeah. They made one for Hey Jude and they made one for Revolution. Yeah. Uh and the Hey Jude one the singing was live. Yeah. So, uh, and it, w- it was while it was a single that they showed both of these. As I recall, they showed them one, uh, one week apart on the uh, Smothers Brothers show. Mm-hmm. That's who showed it in North America. Yeah. And the, the Beatles version, um, uh, I always remembered uh, that when Paul, because Paul's singing the lead vocal live, in the second verse he goes, uh, Hey Jude. Don't let me down. Sang it like that. Yeah. Now you know he doesn't sing it like that on the single, but yeah. I always remembered that. And then on the one for Revolution, uh, they were playing. They, they were pretending to play, but they yeah. were singing live. And John and uh, Paul and George were singing the the backing vocals. They were going be doo wop. Yeah. Even though it's the the single version, yeah. but they were doing that part. And you mm-hmm. can tell there. You can see it. Mm-hmm. They're doing it for fun. Yeah. But at the time, there was no, you know, like, oh, they're doing something different there. That's interesting. Yeah. And then the White Album comes out, and it has this version where they're going, you know, doing that shooby doo yeah. thing. Yeah. And then it all made sense. So, you know. The Beatles and their randomness, their little hints and their little drops. So, okay. So, I mean, I guess we can talk about it more when we get to Revolution 1. We'll we'll talk more about how the, the revolutions uh, evolved when we get there, 
But um, this version, I mean, the reason this version was made was because Revolution 1 became this kind of stretched out, bluesy, slow song. And John so wanted to release it as a single. Like, to him, this was like an important message to get out. How the Beatles feel about Revolution. Like, all this stuff's happening. You know, all this social upheaval is going on, and we're not saying anything. So we need to make it clear where we stand. And so this was really important for him. And the other Beatles are like, nah, too slow. You know, it's too long a song. It's not a single, you know, too, too long on the Hey Jude single. Too long. But so then, uh, so then, yeah, he insisted on this third remake of the song or, or, and our second remake of the song, you know, speed it up, get it really concise, make it really powerful and just create this crazy, you know, super walloping noise that was going to like tell everyone where the Beatles stood, you know. And so I think it packs a wallop. Well, it goes much better with Hey Jude than the other one would have. Yes. Plus, plus, plus it's better, you know. It's I a mean, better song. It's yes. bo- I mean, there's your two sides of the Beatles. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I mean, it's just this awesome noise to this day. They just went, let's have this, you know, mm-hmm. incredible distorted guitar. Yeah. And, and let's just, you know, let's, let's, let's do that. I just like that, that, well, they created the distorted guitars by having direct DI, like directly plugging the guitars into the control board mm-hmm. and then overloading the control board. And but Jeff, the electric piano's distorted. And Jeff, yeah, the singing's distorted. Jeff Emmerich had to, uh, had to keep a careful eye on it that he didn't overheat the control board because, because they're, you know, they're allowing all this distortion going on. And also they were worried that they would get in trouble for, for, uh, you know. Violating EMI rules. That's right. <laughs> Violating the rules of how to how to use the equipment, and so yeah. And then there's two drum That's tracks. Adorable that they were worried. Yeah, about <laughs> no. But you know, they're still just looking over wore, their shoulders. Like, eh. they, they wore gloves in those days. They were. Yeah, they were employees. Where's your gloves? Yes. <laughs> are you an engineer or are you? A... Oh, Where's your weight jacket? Actually. Where's your weight coat? Um, what? Here's the other thing that will blow your mind about Revolution. Okay, blow our minds, Dave. Ten months on from I Am the Walrus. I think it's. I just think that's an amazing amount of like this is. A I crazy can't hear you. My mind of, was just blown. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like just the amount of change in that time. Oh, I mean, just the amount of change, just in general, yeah. with everything that it's. It's. That's yeah. something I. I want to ask you as like a fan at the time. Uh, was this jarring the changes from album to album that you were? No. Hearing? Well, no. They they started doing it. I mean, even with the album covers, like we were saying the other day, uh, you know, Beatles for Sale as an album cover. I remember somebody in my class coming home from uh, England with this LP before it had come out here. And it's like, what? There's no printing on the With that on weird glossy sleeve? Yeah, yeah. It, well, they had uh, uh, Russian paper or something. Okay. Cheap, cheap quality paper. Yeah. But 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 just the way it looked, you know, and look look at their hair and stuff. Like, And it's sort of a little out of focus, maybe. That's, a, that's, that's not a, a, a standard cover. And they just sort of kept pushing everything sound-wise. Like, you, you would get to the point... Uh, you know, I, I mean, even before Sgt. Pepper, it would be, there's a new Beatles single and we're going to play it. And you'd want to hear what that was going to be. I, I remember the first time I heard uh, I, I Am the Walrus was uh, uh, driving around. They said, we have a new Beatles single. It's it's incredible. You're not going to believe it. And here it is. And it's <laughs> I Am the Walrus. And it's the first, it, you know, you would hear this stuff and you'd go, well, that's where they're going now. Yeah. And the Beatles really, the, the White Album is really where that kind of it, it doesn't stop exactly but i think that's where where they began retrenching from 
they kind of went as far as they could. I mm-hmm. think Revolution 9 is as far as they're just doing, you know, eight minutes of music concrete. For, here you go, kids. You know, here here it is. You figure it out. And people did. I mean, to yeah. me, Revolution Nine is something I listen to, and I hear the parts coming up, and oh, there's that little bit. It's it's not all just sounds, but there's because yeah. there, there's music popping up, and it has themes that keep coming up. Uh, you know, I always thought Revolution Nine. I mean, there, there's there's a reason why they didn't call it. You know, you know. The Beatles blow your mind now, or something like that, <laughs> or or didn't come up with some other name. I yeah. mean, it is connected to Revolution, the yeah. song. Uh, I've I've seen it written that uh, the initial recording of the first version, mm-hmm. the the Revolution one, kept going on and on, and they started doing these things, and that's where the impetus for doing Revolution Nine came from. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's something to that, but I mean, when you just you, you know somebody gives it to you for Christmas and let's let's listen to side four and up up comes uh, Revolution Nine, um, you know, like like what I thought was they're sort of giving us it, it's like the Beatles story that double album the you know authorized capital here's mm-hmm. the Beatles story it's them telling you what. You know, it's like a, a audio documentary of what they are thinking. Okay. This is yeah. what our life is like. It starts with a, some kind of technician doing a, you know, number <laughs> nine, number nine. And, uh, you know, f- part of the fun of it was the stereo, right? The, the stereo effect, the number nine going back and forth. Uh, and the, the sound, you know, you listen to that in stereo and it's like just stuff popping up all over the place. Like you're looking from speaker to speaker. Uh, you know, I only had the mono record player, but I would take it to school, to ju- uh, junior high school. William Beagle Junior High School, no longer, the, the building is still there, but it's not William Beagle Junior High School anymore. But they had a, a band room that they had built. And they had a record player that was built into this console, big white wooden console that the Woodcraft uh, guys <laughs> next yeah. door uh, had built for them to put the record player in. And the, the console was stronger than the actual room it was in, probably. It, it, was, it was a load-bearing uh, record player. <laughs> yeah, Someone pretty, ha- music had to be playing at all times or the building would collapse <laughs> after a few seconds. It is, it is pretty <laughs> solid. And, and But they had two big, tall uh, speakers... Uh, which just had like like four or five speakers in them, like vertically arrayed. Uh, but but it was designed so that like the, the you know it was facing where the band would sit on the the riser steps, uh, so that they you, they could play you something and then you would go well that's how it sounds. But I'd go in there on my lunch hour, me and Jim Hamlin, who started No Fun originally. Uh, we were like best friends, and we we would take records in there to play because they would let us in there because we were in the band. Uh, and so you you put something on like that, and it was great. Like the whole room was like shifting from side to side That's when you're playing Revolu- Revolution Nine. Uh, so yeah, there there is a connection, you know how whatever the genesis of Revolution Nine, there is that connection between they, they called it Revolution Nine on purpose. Just like they call, you know, like Revolution, the original version being on the album as Revolution One, uh, 
should actually be version 1.1, is what you kids would say. Version 1.1. Us kids. And then, you know, Revolution 9 is like version 1.9. They skip over eight versions mm-hmm. to get to that, but they're giving you, it's, it's the same thing, only completely different. And just, you know, the fact that people, you know, it's such an enormously popular album, and it culminates in like eight minutes of noise. And, you know, maybe it's most people's least favorite uh, um, Beatles song, but they at least know that it's there. You know, so the the Beatles, I mean, the, that's the most extreme thing they ever did as far as pushing the envelope. There was nowhere for them to go from there. You know, like the some of the early John Lennon, uh, you know, the wedding album and the Life with the Lions. And, Two virgins. Yeah, those things. I mean, they're they're designed to be hard to listen to art projects. But Revolution Nine is a Beatles track on a you know George is on it. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know they could have there. There's that other stuff they recorded at the time that they didn't put on. You know, like uh, what's the new Mary Jane? Mm-hmm. Okay, now they recorded it back then. And tweaked it a little later, uh, but didn't really do anything with it. But, okay, imagine slotting that in there, okay? Mm-hmm. Then what you have is the fourth side kind of drifts away. It doesn't, like, you know, come after you before <laughs> giving you good night as a, as a, as a okay, good night. You know, yeah. it's, it's album's over now. Don't be scared, you know. It, it would just kind of trail off. Uh, and I mean, they're not guilty. I'm looking at, uh, yeah, uh, the George Harrison song, uh, colliding circles. Do you know that one? The George Harrison. I know that one. one. Yeah. yeah. That I mean, one was, that one was not recorded for, for the white album. Junk. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a demo of it. Well, there's demos. That, demos are done at Kinfons, yeah. but, yeah, but, but not could, guilty was actually, you know, well, yeah, they did well, like yeah, a full, could, yeah, full on version takes, of it. Yeah. yeah. But okay. <laughs> we'll say you put that in there. Mm-hmm. Then it just kind of, well, it's just another side. I mean, the, the four sided nature of the white album, like I would have a different favorite side. It would change. Mm-hmm. I'd go, well, you know, side one is, is so great, but I, I kind of am liking the more pastoral sense of <laughs> side two right now. You know, it's, it's a little more laid back generally, but side, side three kind of, you know, jumps around and has, you know, helter skelter. It's awesome. Side four was the for, slightly forbidding <laughs> side, but, but I mean, each side had a character. Mm-hmm. Like actually when we did snivel, when no fun did snivel, each side had a different title yes and uh like side uh, the first side was called dogs are smart actually the, the cassette sides were longer the, the white album is like what 94 minutes altogether you can't record it on a scene no you can't record it you have, you have to leave off revolution yeah. nine to get it on a that's two, right two, so two you can't so uh uh so that's what actually two c60s and each of the sides was more like 25 to 27 minutes but each had a, a title side one was dogs are smart Side two was Arcane Chit Chat. Side three was Woodstock Super Jam with an exclamation mark. (laughs) And side four was called When Things Became Hopeless. And that's the only one that actually is based on a song that's on that side. Like the, the title song Snivel is the last song of the whole thing. And in that there is a line When Things Became Hopeless. And that was deliberate because... That's what the White Album was. The White <laughs> Album leads up to yeah. side four, 
and side four is where they're going to give it to you. They, they've done everything else for you. They've tap danced for you and they've rocked for you and they've, you know, done pleasant sounds and they've done, you know, like they've done everything. Now they're going to, they're going to like start punching you out. Yeah. We're, we're going to, we're going to beat on you. Uh, you, you listen to this. And then it's over. So, I mean, that the the idea was the fourth side is the most important. It, it, it's still an album. It's four different sides. In fact, as I was saying in, in the car on the way here, um, like when you get a CD of the White Album, uh, si the, the first CD has the green label yeah. and the second CD has the white label. Well... To me, that's wrong because side one of the LP is the green level label. Side two is the white label. Side three is the green label. Side four is the white label. So, um, you know, it's nice that they have the two things on there, but it's not the same thing to me as the differentiation between sides. Mm. You know, some something about side two just seems white label. Apple to me. Um, so yeah. Once again, subjective context, of course. Well, well we well, actually. I, I, I was, I, no, I, I was. I was. I was. You know. I was. I was there. This is what it means to me. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you know the the law, of, the law of un, unintended consequences. Uh, you know, did did the Beatles know that in 2014 people would still be fascinated by them? Yeah. Probably not. Pro probably not. Judging probably by, just happy the world still exists. They probably, Good for us keeping they're that probably going. still planning to open a string of hairdressing salons. When we when we get to Revolution, like when we're actually talking about it, yeah. like Revolution Nine, I got some opinions on that. Okay. But I'm going to pace myself. Yeah, let's we'll get to let's get to that when I'll we get say, to it. Say something, uh, David. Dave likes things in order. When we mess yeah. it up, oh, it's just well, like he can, he it's can like edit. mixing my, it's like mixing the peas with the meat, and it just right. like, everything crosses over okay. and it drives them nuts. You guys are getting on my Asperger. By the way, he doesn't he doesn't edit at some point I, i'm going to want to like the beatles white album is i mean it's the greatest album ever made mm. and it's also they don't really make double albums anymore yeah like anything that comes out on a cd if they put it out on vinyl it's on two hunks of vinyl but that's not the same thing it's not the same as a, as a double album so i did make a list uh, I, the rest of the top 10 uh, greatest double albums of all time. Okay, well, we'll the, the, the we'll white album is number one. Okay, we'll get to that. Don't yes. forget about it. We'll get to it near the end of the no, show. I have it written down. Okay, good, good. <laughs> okay, so okay, we can move on from Revolution because I think we kind of covered it. But I just wanted to say when I've read that Paul McCartney plays the organ part on it, but I've also read that Nicky Hopkins plays the organ part on it. So I'm not sure who uh, who oh, actually the, did the it. Electric piano, you mean? Yeah, it's Nicky Hopkins. It is Nicky. Yeah. It is Nicky Hopkins. Yeah. So the fantastic Nicky Hopkins, who basically like made Sympathy for the Devil with his piano part and played so many great... Uh, he was a session musician during the 60s. He played on, on all kinds of different records, played for the Kinks. I think the Kinks wrote Session Man about him. And, uh, and then he later went, came to the States, played with um, the Quicksilver Messenger yes. Service, and then started... Did very some... distinctive piano player. Yeah. It's hard to be that distinctive in the rock field that yeah. he was. Just the way, like Floyd Kramer is distinctive. He was distinctive in the in the rock field, like nobody else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, when you listen to a Nicky Hopkins part, you know you're listening to. He did a lot for. He did a lot with the Rolling Stones. He basically played on every song that that Ian Stewart didn't play on. 
That was his role. Well, anything that had minor chords. Anything that had minor chords. <laughs> yes, Ian Stewart, who yeah. played piano in the Rolling Stones and was never in any pictures of the Rolling Stones because he was basically like a hulking behemoth. He didn't fit into like the teeny bopper image of the band. Oh, well, I thought he was actually too big for yeah he, for your cameras. Well, at that's the, the thing. Time. Yeah, his it only saw his chin in any that's picture. That's why I couldn't play minor chords. He was yeah. a big man. Can't, <laughs> can't get around those. Makes but yeah, sense. he refused to play minor chords. So if well, the he song was just had boogie woogie, that yeah. was that was his thing. That, that was, was his thing. specialty, and also the only thing he would do. <laughs> yes. like he's on boogie with Stu, the Led Zeppelin song, which is yeah. you know straight up, no minor chords, boogie woogie. Yeah, right. that's his, that was his specialty. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so so Nicky Hopkins. Something. But like I say, like the the if you want to know who he is, then you just have to listen to like the piano part for uh, "Sympathy for the Devil." Is there a piano part in "Street Fighting Man"? Or am I thinking of the the Rod Stewart version of it? Uh, yeah, n- no, there isn't. Well, you know, uh, sympathy for the devil. I mean, that there's that uh, Godard film, uh, uh, One Plus One, yes, which was renamed Sympathy for the Devil. Yeah, you, you can get it on video because everyone kept and, saying One Plus One equals boredom. That was yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's just joke. going back and forth between revolutionary scenarios mm-hmm. acted out by non-professionals, and then you see the Rolling Stones in the studio. Yeah, and they're like goofing around, you know, strumming a little thing, you know, <laughs> please allow me to introduce my. So, yeah. And you know nothing is happening, and it's, you know, <laughs> and then all of a sudden Charlie is playing this drum beat, and the piano player is playing, and it's Nicky Hopkins, and yeah. it sounds like Sympathy for the Devil, and yeah. you don't really hear them go from A to B, just you know, <laughs> just a, it's like. You well, know. you know what? I'm sure that's how it happened, though. I'm sure it just took that one little drum beat, that moment where you go like, oh, I've got a piano part that can fit this perfectly, and then everyone's like, that's it. Because if it wasn't it, it would just be one more part of that endless string well, well, of boredom. Yeah, you, you don't get the part where the piano sounds great, stop playing guitar. You know. <laughs> Keith, here's, here's a bass, you gotta play that. So, um, so okay, let's let's move on to the Beatles. So this is going to be side three of the album. Okay. Let me just ask this then. Three. I know we're, it's, we're, we're like well into it and we haven't gotten into side three yet. Yeah, but, yeah. Okay, so you're a young man, you're, uh, it's Christmas, you open up your album. Uh, what is in this album? What is physically in the album, like poster-wise, and what's all the business that's in there? Well, it's, we can it, do that now. It's it's a gloss. Well, it seems like that's where it would fit. <laughs> sure, you're, okay. you're opening sure. the album. Well, it's glossy and it's it's neat. And when you you take the shrink wrap off, you get these these four pictures, one of each Beatle. Okay, so yeah, that I uh, will. Uh, very I nice will pictures. Attest. They are very nice pictures of each of the Beatles. So if you're a young girl, you're sitting <laughs> on your bed, you've laid these out. Then Helter Skelter will mess with your head later on, but those pictures that, you're looking yeah, the, at. The pictures were taken by a photographer named John Kelly. He did all the, the photographs. And they, they are glamour photos. Definitely mm-hmm. like glamour shots. Especially yeah. the, the Paul one is he's just f***ed you, and, and he's, he's <laughs> you know, he's sort of look, giving you the eye, like, you know, like, I'll, I'll be leaving soon, and uh, but, you know, I want you to think well of me. That's and maybe I'll write a song about you, maybe I won't. Yeah. We'll see how but, it goes. And then you get this, which is... Uh, a poster also on the very nice glossy paper that has yeah. a whole bunch of pictures uh, of various kinds it's uh, a, some... but, but personal pictures not just yes. like not just press pictures yeah you've personal... seen now the pro pics and yeah. these are yeah, let's go behind uh, the scenes yeah so get to yeah, know. These I mean, are you, you can shots. study this for hours and i did mm. and and looking for meaning and yeah. stuff there's you know john washing his hair john naked on the phone uh in a lotus position <laughs> and then on the other side you get the lyrics all printed out 
Nice. So, you know, this is a little version that goes in with the CD, but the, the actual nice smelling ones that came with the record, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's white. It came out December 1st. It, you know, to me, it's always been a Christmas album. You know. Was it exciting to take it out and it was the Apple label on it rather oh, yeah. than well, the... Well, the Apple, I, I still, you know, the, the the only record label I would ever have been excited to, to be on is Apple. Yeah. If, you know... Even though it meant the end of your career, I, <laughs> it still would have been exciting. It, it didn't matter, you know. <laughs> I, you know, there's... there's uh, we're going to manage you into the ground. Yeah, well, That was our yeah. promise to all it, our artists. Well, they didn't know what they were doing, but it, it kind of, you know, it, look at, like, Besides the Beatles stuff, there's a lot of really good Apple stuff. Yeah. You compare their output to the output of any other record mm -hmm. label at that time, and they, you know, they were definitely going for all kinds of different yeah. music, but good quality. Yeah, it's high quality. Yes. The two Mary Hopkin albums are very good. Yes. James Taylor's debut album, really nicely done. Well, they yeah they did unearth James Taylor. <laughs> yes. Let's face it. Um, okay, so we're to so the third. Uh, I, well, since we're talking about it, let's oh, just say let's just say that um, the album cover itself was designed by an artist named Richard Hamilton, and he was brought in. Uh, he was kind of a conceptual artist, and basically what he did was he just purposefully designed this album cover that was completely the opposite of everything that was happening in record stores at that time, because everyone was copying Sgt. Pepper. Uh, Magical Mystery Tour style, you know, it was all this kind of psychedelia and all these brightly colored albums and all really this really busy, really busy and bright and stuff like that. And suddenly, in the midst of all this, was this single white square, you know, with and you couldn't even read the Beatles in the name of it. You had to like be up close to it and turn it slightly so the so that the light could catch. How did the retailers feel about that? Like something that you that well, you didn't have the name of the band that they're trying to sell. On, I mean, they, I think they're the, like good for you artists, or they're like, was, hey fellas, uh, you know, I, give me a hand. I think there was a clear uh, sticker saying the Beatles in okay. that exact typeface okay. on the shrink wrap. Okay, the Beatles. So that's what it's there said. was there was a. Yeah, like you wouldn't look at it and go, I don't, it's just white. Yeah. You looked at it and it said the Beatles. Okay. All right. But, okay. you know, they, they could have, you know, they could have covered it in, in garbage and people would have found it. So, <laughs> yeah, that's about know, it. It's, it's the Beatles. Uh, it's like people are going to look for it. It was supposed to be originally called A Doll's House as well. They wanted to name it after the Ibsen play. But in August, so the, al the album came out in November. In August, Family released, the band Family released an album called Music from a Doll's House. Mm -hmm. And so kind of. Yeah, uh, I would just, I would like to know what the real time frame of that was. Like, maybe family heard about, uh, it's a good album, by the way. Oh, yeah, it's a great album. Uh, but maybe they heard that and then decided to call it that. But also, maybe the Beatles just went, A Doll's House, you know, we've gone to, we, we've taken this whole psychedelic album cover that everybody's copying thing. Yeah. Uh, why don't we do, you know, we're the Beatles, let's do the opposite. Because yeah. no one else is going to do that. So instead of calling it a doll's house, which sort of sounds pretentious a little bit, and it's a double album, it's this great grand thing. Yeah. Let's put it in a plain white cover, and let's uh, you know we'll we'll stick something inside with lyrics and pictures and stuff. But let's just make the outside just white, and let's just call it the Beatles, something no one would expect them to do. Yeah. You know, so actually, you know, after this, the expectation really was that because they kept putting singles out and you'd hear that they're recording something. Uh, in fact, Get Back was played on the radio before it was they were going to put it out. Then they didn't. So I heard a whole bunch of that on the radio at the time. Yeah. But you would hear that they were up to something. And the assumption was 
another double album because they'd set the standard of double album. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder what the next double album is going to have on it. Uh, you know, like, Interesting. like I, I really think they did hit a wall with this. Like they, 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 and I think the cover kind of reflects that they knew that they knew that there's no, they couldn't get any more psychedelic. Yeah. And the music wasn't going to get more psychedelic. They kind of had established this wide range of, of music that they made. And this is some of everything. And then some, they'd gone as far as they could go with different kinds of things. Still being the Beatles. Yeah. yeah. But then what, what were they going to do? Which is why the retrenchment of, uh, you know, like, well, let's just do something where we can all play it uh, all together at the same time. Yeah. Which is why the thing that No Fun put out after uh, Snivel was something called 1894, which was a fake, like, let it be. Like, yeah. it was, like, made to sound like we were recording it in the basement, but it's actually the most, like, just two guitars and singing, and that was it. But it's actually the most fraudulent recording we ever did. Like none of it was recorded except one one short track was recorded, both of us at the same time. Everything else is just one track at a time. But again, if you're a rock group, you have to deal with the, with the Beatles, and you have to deal with what is your white album. Mm. You know, well, it sounds like the Beatles had to deal with the Beatles as well. They, that, more than they anyone. were the first to. Have well, to when deal you're with saying that it was a doll's house, like I'm familiar with that play. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know the play, it kind of ends with a woman who has a nice life, like she's not in a bad relationship or anything, but she's yeah. going, I can't be this pretty housewife in this role that everyone expects. I got to go out and live my life, and you don't know where she's going or what she's going to do. But that would completely make sense thematically for what they're doing here. Is like you expect us to be this. We can't be that anymore. We're heading out the door, and it's going to get crazy from this point on. Yeah, but, yeah. I, you know, I don't know that. Again, you know, I, was it that thought they out? Were thinking. Yeah. I don't. I think maybe they weren't thinking Ibsen. I think they were thinking a doll's house with many rooms that are all different. Oh, that could be as well. Okay. I think that's what uh, the yeah, cover idea was. Yeah. Was. But then family uh, took that idea as well. That cover that's for. That's what a, it is. Music yeah. from a doll's house is a doll's house. So. Yeah. So. Um, it could be both. I mean, but both. Well, yeah, probably. I mean, John McCartney would have known about it because he, well, because of, because of, because yeah, of uh, uh, Asher, because of his uh, yeah. relationship with her. I mean, he would have known about Ibsen. Well, no, I, they they all would. I just probably after like you know, someone had the idea and then they all forgot that it was Paul who had the idea and they stopped presenting him for it and then they thought, <laughs> well. It could be the Ibsen thing too, and then they then they thought about it some more, and they went, "Nah, it's pretentious." And well, then, then Paul said, "Let's make it all white." And so it's it's a shame we don't have time to actually talk about the album. But uh, on next next week's show, we're going now. Let's actually do. Let's do it. So right. let's just say one more thing about recording the album, which was that those during, of you, by the way, that are working out to this, we apologize. Please take a rest. Dur- during when they were making Sgt. Pepper, when they were making Magical Mystery Tour, the Beatles would go into the studio. They would rehearse the song. They would get it to what they wanted. Then they would turn on the tape, and then they would you know record you know three or four tracks to get the best track, and then they would build from there. When they started doing the White Album, what they did was they just turned on the tape machine and they just jammed, they just rehearsed, they just did whatever. And so something like Not Guilty, which didn't even make it onto the album, had literally 102 takes. Some of them weren't complete takes. I think there was 21 complete takes of the song. Wow. But 102 takes of one song. And then then they would go back and listen to those takes 
and choose the one that they thought that was the best, and then that would be cho- chosen the one to, to put all the superimpositions I, on. I think not. it's the one thing they could have they could have stuck on there if they didn't have. You know, it, it's so clear with this 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 division of 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 labor that they have in the band where George gets one song per side. Yeah, except for revolvers. Really clear, and especially okay. Up until now, they hadn't done a double album, but Ringo would have a song. Yeah. And Ringo has two songs that he sings. Yeah. He wrote one of them, which was like out of the blue. He wrote a song. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, but he sings two. Yeah. So the division of labor is exactly the same as on the previous Beatles albums. And, you know, like, like, like uh, you know, George had just sort of had enough, I think. They could have found a place for that not guilty if they weren't so dead set on giving him only one song per side. And I think, you know, they, except for revolver. Well, no, they should allow, you know, I, 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 I spent some time thinking about sticking what's the new Mary Jane on in place of revolution nine yeah. and what that would mean and what else you could do to it. You could add junk. Okay. You, know, you could add sing-along junk because yeah. there's those little bitty things that pop up, like "Can you take me back where I yeah. came from?" Well, the, the, yeah, yeah, those, those things. I mean, uh, that a beginning, that orchestral mm-hmm. piece that's at the beginning of one of the uh, the was beginning in, of uh, was intended anthology. by George as the opening for "Don't Pass Me By." That's right. Yeah. Which there was no room for it in I, in what they released. There's that little like uh, uh, Leslie speaker. Uh, guitar thing it's running through a leslie uh little intro you know extemporaneous thing that that leads right into it so there was no place for it Mm -hmm. but it must have been to go with some other recording of it yeah because that's clearly a part of it the little intro but i mean uh, that's that's what i think though they could have rejiggered things a little and got not guilty on there someplace, mm-hmm. you know, taken off, you know, wild honey pies kind of, kind of unnecessary. I like that it refers to honey pie yeah. later, yeah. but it doesn't really need to be. There, but even if you know. took it off, you still wouldn't give yourself that much time to put, put well, not guilty on there. It's longer than a C90 anyways. Yeah. So you're going for a one. <laughs> you're going for broke. You might as well. So, yeah, I agree with you. That's, it, that's what I think. It's the one song. I think that what's a new Mary Jane. I really like. Which I, I enjoy it. Which you can listen to on YouTube. By the way, the one we're YouTube, talking yeah. about there, there is a version of that on YouTube. Yeah. If you, uh, but I think in a way it's, it's a hard song to follow or to put into, the, into, to open with. It's not really, it's a real hard song to yeah, fit it's into. It's like, a, do you know my name? Look up the numbers. Yeah. Great as a B-side. Yeah. Great. Like lots of fun, mm-hmm. endlessly listenable. But what album would you put it on? Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't even sound right on Past Masters. It's, <laughs> it's, kind, of, it's kind of a sore thumb. Yeah, yeah. Even though it was one of my favorite songs as a kid. What about Birthday Day? So let's, yeah, let's put the needle down on side, on side put three. Put the needle on the record. Side and three. the alligator clips are And clipped. Chris, you do it a little clumsily, so it kind of scratches a little bit through the through the. If you're my record player, you got to put a couple of pennies on there to hold <laughs> okay. it down. And so, yeah, so this song, uh, Birthday, is kind of interesting because what happened when they were recording this song was, um, this was when George Martin was away and Chris Thomas, uh, George Martin's assistant, who was kind of uh, kind of learning, was sort of doing a uh, internship to become a producer for Air. Um, he took over the, the producing, took over, I'm putting that in quotes, because <laughs> basically he went to the, went to the sessions and just stood in the back of the room and didn't actually, uh, do anything. He just watched George producing the Beatles. Yeah. And that was great. He did as much as a shadow and, did. And then one day he comes into work and he's got a note from George saying, 
you know, he came back from vacation. So I hope you enjoyed your vacation. I'm off for two weeks. Good luck. He and did, so he did play the harpsichord on piggy. He did. He also played the uh, uh, the piano on Savoy Truffle, the electric uh, yeah, organ, yeah, electric he, piano, yeah. electric piano. And he yeah. played. Um, and yeah, so he played on a couple of things. So um, and I was so yeah. So then uh, so I guess the first session he did was for Helter Skelter actually, and he just kind of came in and he was just sitting there. And Paul came in, and Paul's like, who are you? He goes, uh, well, I'm Chris Thomas, and I will, you know, kind of take over for George. And he's like, Paul's like, okay, well, you know, uh, that's good. You know, we'll see if you're any good. If you're not, F off. That's what he said to him, literally. So he kind of gave him, like, a, a real, you know, hearty greeting. As to, yeah. Welcome to the Beatles. And uh, which is like any boys club, you have to kind of pass through some... Uh, some hazing before you can... Yeah, it's a lot of you spanking can, and Yeah, can, before you can go into the portal. But... So yeah, well, George was away. So birthday is one of the songs that was done at that time. And what happened was, is that, uh, uh, the girl can't help it was being shown on British television for the first time on, on television. It, last time it was ran in the fifties. And of course the Beatles loved it because it had little Richard in it, it had Gene Vincent in it. And so, you know, it was their chance to see these. And it's Technicolor and Cinemascope, which means they were seeing a black and white about, <laughs> about half of the picture. <laughs> but you know, Even still, little Richard they makes. were excited. They were excited. Yeah. It was Thin Domino also is in the uh, movie as well. And so, um, so, you know, they, they're kind of excited. So Paul suggested that we start, we'll, we'll start the session early. We'll start at five. And then we'll have a break at around eight o'clock. We'll go and go to my place, which was just around the corner from from Abbey Road, and we'll watch it. And then we'll come back and finish the session. Typically shrewd, Paul. It's typically shrewd. More control. <laughs> so he came in, and so and he came in a little early. So Chris Thomas came in, and, and Paul was already in the studio with Ringo, and they were working on this riff. They had kind of, and basically, uh, according to Chris Thomas, uh, Paul kind of put the song together in the studio, just kind of. Just for the heck of it, just started did the song, started working on it, and as the Beatles came in, they they added their parts and they started creating the song. And it was basically improvised in the studio. It wasn't brought in by anyone, and worked, you know, and and rehearsed and worked on it. It just kind of grew organically that day. And then they took the break. They went and watched "The Girl Can't Help It," which it's kind of an interesting film. I was because I was kind of I've seen it. I don't know if you've seen it. it has Jane Jane Mansfield and uh, I, have, to- I have it. And, uh, cool. Well, you've sold me Tom with Jane, Ewell Jane Mansfield. Okay. And has Edmund O'Brien, which I kind of laughed at because... How could Jane Mansfield fit on a screen that small? But what that was, makes no sense. What was funny to me was how much this movie related to my life. And it's directed by Frank Tashlin. Because you dated Jane Mansfield for a short period of time. The, 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 yes, and the headless version. Drank a lot of milk. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Frank Tashlin directed Warner Brothers cartoons. So he directed like Bugs Bunny cartoons okay. and, and, uh, and Porky Pig cartoons and things like that. When he left Warner Brothers, Robert McKimson took over his unit, took over his animation unit. And then he worked, he directed uh, Martin and Lewis films and the Jerry Lewis movies and stuff like that. And in between that, he directed The Girl Can't Help It, which was kind of like the first kind of actually put money into a big blockbuster movie that had rock and roll music in it. And it's, it's not an exploitation movie. It's not, it's not making fun of rock and roll. It's, How did it do in the theaters? It did very well. It was a big hit. It was a big hit movie. And I laughed that it has Tom Ewell in it because he had done The Seven Year Itch with Marilyn Monroe. So I guess he became the go-to actor to be in, <laughs> you know, with big buxom blonde actresses to, we had to get Tom Ewell in this movie. That's worst roles to have. Okay. But the guy who wrote the music for it was Bobby Troop, who did, uh, Route 66. And so that, ex- and was married to Julie London. That's right. And that explained why Julie London is in the movie doing Crimea River. And we know them and from drove, Emergency. And we know them from my favorite show from the 70s, Emergency. Played. With an exclamation mark. And he, and he drove, drove the Jeep in the movie MASH. Well. Okay. Is he the one that says Bobby Troop? GD Army? Yeah. That's Bobby Troop. Oh, man. I didn't realize that. I'll have yeah. to watch it again. 
Yeah, so yeah, he played Doctor Early in Emergency, and Julie Lennon, of course, played Dick, Nurse Dixie McCall. Dixie McCall, yeah. They were an item, and yeah, so he wrote Rampart the music for Hospital. that. Yeah. And then Edmund O'Brien, who's in the movie, of course, was also acted as Johnny Dollar, my my favorite <laughs> radio show to listen to while I'm while I'm working on title cards and doing art and stuff like that. I love listening to old Johnny Dollar episodes. So I just thought this movie's for me. It's so for me. Those of you out there who are listening right now, check out who Johnny Dollar is. Watch old emergencies. <laughs> we recommend all Please this to do. you. It will make this song "Birthday" so much better for you. And so, yeah, the movie yeah, featured slow, slow. Play your podcast at a slower speed to get all that. <laughs> yeah, sorry, everyone. <laughs> I'm so excited. Uh, yeah, so the movie featured Little Richard, Gene Vincent, Fats Domino, The Platters, Eddie Cochran, and then bizarrely, it had the jazz singer Abby Lincoln in it. She did a really great jazz record called Straight Ahead with uh, Eric Dolphy and Max Roach. But anyway, um, and so, yeah, the Beatles saw that movie, and it was a real inspiration for them to see, actually physically see, not physically, but, well, I guess they're physically people, but to see the these rock stars being rock stars on the screen so they could see them and, you know, even more aspire to be these people. And, and it's Eddie Cochran's version of 20 Flight Rock that Paul McCartney played for John Lennon when they met mm. at the Walton Village, or the, the FET, it so impressed Lennon by his guitar prowess, you know, that basically gave him the in to become a member of the Corey. The and they Corey went, we, we should do a movie. And then they went, oh, yeah, we already did two. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah. Anyway, so I just wanted to bring that up because that movie is such like this weird Nexus movie. You know what those kind of weird? Oh, absolutely. Nexus things? Yeah. yeah, it all connects. Yeah. Yeah. So now, would you say, would you say that, let me just give you this question, both of you. Would you say, yeah, uh, this song is the most played Beatles song? Like on uh... now that it's on YouTube, yes. Okay, it's on YouTube. <laughs> Clearly, everyone's back, Facebook. It's probably on Facebook every day. I would say this is one that I do hear every day because, like, certain radio stations will always play this, and then they'll tell you whose birthdays mm-hmm. were going yeah. on. Like, someone's always having a birthday, so yeah. it just well, there's feels like a, there's a cool sound to it, which yeah. is not on the mono version. Is I think I think they meant for this to be all stereo. That's mm-hmm. what they cared yeah. about with yeah. this because there's a bunch of places on the album. This is. One of the Obladi Oblada has the same thing, but they record to uh, the vocal out of phase in each speaker, so you can't put it in the middle. Yeah. It's like wiring your speakers uh, wrong out of phase. Uh, a mono signal will sound diffuse; it won't sound like it's coming from right between the two stereo speakers. Mm-hmm. So they did that on purpose to give it that sound. So you know that riff comes in with the uh, with the birthday; they're pounding away at <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. and then the vocals come in, and they're like in both speakers, like sort of like weird really this immediate weird sound yeah, yeah yeah and then later in the song they've got that piano feedback sort of sound that they're they're fading you know bringing in and bringing out it doesn't sound it sounds like piano but it doesn't sound like someone's playing a piano it sounds yeah. like like yeah. where's what it sounds sound like a tinker that? toy it sounds like a, a fisher price piano that well, it's, playing. it sounds like it's backwards it sounds like it's you Could can't be. it's just this great yeah. great sound and you know that's that's the Beatles, you know, like yeah. like constantly surprising you, and on purpose. They're like, yeah. oh, we got this great thing, going <laughs> you know, and then and then they would it's, throw it at. Well, it's you. true. An important part of the Beatles is the arrangements that that they brought to the songs. It's it is my birthday this week uh, on on Thursday, and my tradition at midnight uh, when I when when it's my birthday is to play a Birthday Boy by the Residents. That's my tradition. That that. Uh, Second to birthday, that is the most listened to birthday song. Well, I know, um, and I, I know that's why too. But uh, but at some point during the day, I always play birthday as well, like for myself. Yeah. Like the last since that mono box came out, I play the mono box because it's a different mix. And, mm. You know. So, yeah. So yeah. Slightly different. 
Cool. And by the way, if you want to send presents uh, to David, uh, look him up on. Uh, there's ways of doing that yeah. on on the internet. So send him things. He's on YouTube. Yeah. It's my birthday too. Yeah. <laughs> you say it's my birthday. <laughs> I'm going to have a good time. Sounds, sounds uh, like the saddest birthday. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad it's my birthday. Oh, consider he's cheering the, up now. Consider the alternative. <laughs> That's, that is there true. You go. There are, yes. Good All right. point. So let's move on from birthday and okay. my excitement over birthday. Um, Please don't kill me right now. <laughs> um, so an, another Rishikesh another song, Your Blues. But I think it's kind of interesting that Lennon wrote this on acoustic guitar in Rishikesh. Because it's such a pounding song, and recorded in a closet off of the main, off of the control room. Oh, is it really? Yeah, there's a very. It was called an annex. It's kind of a large cupboard that was in Abbey Road in Studio Studio Two, and so Lennon, I guess he wanted like a really claustrophobic feel to the song, so they just moved all the instruments into this into this into this cupboard. I, th- I think they were doing several things simultaneously. That's possible. And like uh, several of these things that I've read about the White Album over the years have mentioned that, you know, someone would be in one studio doing something while someone was working on a mix in another Some, studio. Sometimes, but this this was all four of them playing well, at the same no, time yeah, for, the, for the song. There's, there's a bunch of that, too. Yeah. But, I mean, that large number of Paul by himself things, mm. I think him living around the corner, I think, just meant he'd drop in more often than the others who yeah. had more that of a commute. Yeah. But I, I do think they, you know, it, it's a pretty diverse double album, but they did make a lot of effort to be all playing together on things yeah you know as much as possible yeah but it's also the first album that guys would go on vacation and they'd keep on doing the recording sessions so excuse me i drank water the wrong way now i'm going to sound like this the rest of the show no you sound much better oh do i say drink water that way all the time yeah this song to me sounds like a blues musician who's trying acid for the first time and it just kicks in like halfway through, uh, like when the eagle picks my eye. About that point, that's when it's just just kicking in. Well, it was meant as a it was meant as a satire oh, on on the yeah. the British blues boom that was going on at that time, with the like the the uh, with the kind of the invention of the Marshall stack. It suddenly allowed for for like club and concert performances that weren't that were audible, and so it 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 kind of led away from what the Beatles were, which was kind of like this tight pop combo into this more freeform guitar rock where the guitar was more important and there's a lot of, you know, dealing on the guitar and stuff like that. And so and so that kind of fed into this blues boom where you had suddenly had guitar heroes like Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and Peter Green from Fleetwood Mac. And you had, you know, so it was this totally different kind of concept of playing of, of, of you know, of, of how music would go together. And so you started seeing the shift away from the pop quartet to the rock trio and there was just a different kind of music that was coming about at that time can i ask you a specific lyric question sure all right uh when he's saying here that i feel so suicidal like uh just like dylan's mr jones what is that a reference to the song uh mr mr jones yeah yeah ballad of a thin man there's a song where Dylan says, Something's can you hear me, Mr. Yeah. You don't know what it is, Very do good. you, Mr. Jones? <laughs> and so, yeah. Lennon thought that song was aimed at him. Oh, so it's so, a bit of a reply? So that? I don't know if it's a reply. I think it's more a comment on how you feel when you're being told that you don't know what's happening and that you're not a hip person. And so it's kind of a... I think he said... Lennon described some of his time in meditation in India as him trying to reach God and also feeling suicidal. 
So that is one way to reach God. That is one very efficient way. <laughs> well, to, it's, yeah. yeah, it's it's a stri- it's a uh, Lenin-esque thing to come up with while you're on some spiritual retreat in India. Yes, that's, that's exactly know, that's right. That's typical. Yeah. John Lennon, and I mean, he he ends up going even hate my rock and roll and just want to die. You know, yeah, like, yeah. Just totally like like you know jumping up and down on. Uh, the whole idea of of uh, you know your blues your is spelled incorrectly as well on purpose yeah because it's a com- sly dog it's a it's like a comment on yeah that kind of authenticity because at the time there was a big thing can can white people play the blues can white people be you know true to the blues form which was traditionally black music and could course, they what was the answer I don't think anyone ever came up with a I with an answer the Ruddles, the Ruddles pointed out. Uh, uh, they they are the ones who inspired the original Delta musicians. That's there you the go. Rose. Well, but also <laughs> so the Bonzos can blue men well, sing the whites. Blue men yeah. sing the whites. That's yeah. right. By the way, so. look these things up as well. If you, we mention it at almost every show, but if you have not seen the Ruddles, check out what we're talking about. <laughs> Please do. So yeah, interesting. What what I think is kind of curious about this song is when you're listening to it, it sounds like Lennon's mic cuts out during the last part of the song because he's he's yelling away, but he's off mic. Well, there's an edit. Like, yeah. there's a big difference between the stereo and mono versions, mm-hmm. and my my thinking is that the reason it sounds so different is that the stereo version is put together from two parts. Like, there's yeah. that little drum fill. Yeah. And then what It what happens, there's an edit that, at 351. Yeah, there's no more uh, lead vocal after that. There's mm. just this, this sort of ghost of a vocal that yeah. sounds like he's singing... This is how the song goes. It's yeah. like they're running it down from a rehearsal okay. or something. Okay. Uh, like he's not on mic. There is no mic for him to be on. They're yeah. just like jamming it out to get it to sound like something. Yeah. So and and the mono version is different. Uh, on on that, it sounds different. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But it, but anyways, that's that that's what it is. Hmm. Is there's there's no lead vocal to go to. There's just and they it you know it's there. They thought it sounded cool. So they left it, but, you know. Um, at this time, uh, Fender guitar and were really pushing on the Beatles to um, to use Fender instruments and f- use Fender equipment. Before that time, Brian Epstein had a gentleman's agreement with Vox that they would only use Vox amps and would not... Say, he actually said to the guy, as long as I'm alive, the Beatles will only use Vox amps. So, of course, when Brian died... That kind of left the door open for more lobbying. Are you saying Fender lobbying. killed Brian Epstein? <laughs> That's right. Oh, That's a bold God. statement. That is a bold statement. I, I'm not saying it. What's I'm, the difference between this podcast and other Beatles podcasts? We got the we got the guts <laughs> yeah, the, to let you know to what let happened. you know. So, but this song delving into the anti-Semitism of the Fender organization. <laughs> this song, Glass Onion, and Well My Guitar Gently Weeps are the only songs on the album that that uh, Paul didn't play as Rick and Backer bass. He played a Fender jazz. Jazz precision bass on these ones, so easier yeah. to tune. Easier to tune the jazz yeah, precision, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rickenbacker, uh, Jim Hamlin again from the early days of No Fun. Yeah, uh, he's the first good bass he bought was a Rickenbacker because uh, you know Chris Squire from Yes played it. Oh, well, there but you they're, go. But they're terrible to tune, and if you just want to play bass parts then you want something that can tune. If you want to run all over the, the fretboard playing bass, uh, Rickenbacker will get more attention. So he switched to a precision bass. The th- jazz bass has a thinner neck. Oh, okay. But uh, just for solid bass, uh, precision bass would be the standard. I also think it's interesting that Lennon performed this one Beatles song outside of the Beatles. He performed it in the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll 
circus as the Dirty Mac, and then you performed it on live piece in Toronto. And I don't know if it was just because it was a good jam song that you could a lot of yeah, people could quickly teach. learn. Yeah, yeah. Well, he it's it's he did it in Rock and Roll Circus, and uh, Eric Clapton plays on that, mm-hmm. so it meant he didn't have to teach him that so much, or he could help him teach the uh, the you know Klaus Vormann and Alan White in the plane on the way to yeah, the, on the way to Toronto. Yeah. That's why it's yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's speaking of Paul McCartney's solo songs, we will move on to Mother Nature's Son which is one of many songs on the album that Paul did uh, almost completely solo. It does have some other instrumentation, but no, no Beatles on it. So um, what, you're going to say something? I'm just going to say, you know, it's, it's one of the ones where, you know, Donovan leaps out of his seat like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, because he taught the Beatles this, this style of playing, which is called, uh, oh, I mentioned it last time, and I can't remember what it was called, but it's named after um, a famous, uh, you know, bluegrass player. And oh, I'm going to kill myself that I can't remember it. Sorry, but um, is it uh, bluesy Grassman? That's it. It's a bluesy Grassman technique, and it, uh, yeah. So he taught it to them in Rishikesh because the Beatles were just kind of stuck there with their acoustic guitars and mostly strumming. And there's only, you know, when you're strumming, it's hard to get like a, a you know, like a long sustained chord and stuff like that. I think it was Lou and Davis invented. The- <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's the, the Lou and Davis yeah. chord, and uh, so and so yeah, he taught them this style which he had learned. And the folk scene in, in, in when he, around in Scotland where he performed. And so he'd pick this up, I think. And so then he took that and he taught the Beatles. And then, of course, he could spend the rest of his life telling everyone that he taught the Beatles that... Yeah, that, he had so. to go on another retreat just to <laughs> calm down. <laughs> to calm down. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I can't believe. They've got like four songs. Did he hear Dear Prudence? Because that just uses that technique. It's amazing. Half a million pounds down the drain. Oh, <laughs> man. What, what a wasted retreat that was. So apparently inspired by a talk given by the Maharishi, because it also inspired Child of Nature, the John Lennon song that later became Jealous Guy, but was was also dem- demoed at, at Kinfons. And I'm so, just a child of nature. Yeah. It's not as good. As Jealous Guy? Yeah. And so, well, that's why he redid it. He knew that's, it wasn't as good. That's right. He went, uh, stupid Maharishi. So, and I think it's part of the kind of late 60s getting back to nature scene mm-hmm. that was so popular with bands like Traffic or Led Zeppelin, you know, going to live in a cottage somewhere without any power and well, that's what's no great running about water. With Nail and I. Yes. Like when I, when I first saw that, I, I'm like, are they, they're actually making a movie about this. About this like, one, like, right, this two year trend. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just getting back to nature and how horrible that actually yes. would be. I'm getting reality. my head together. Yeah. Well, I've often said that it's fun to read about um it's fun to read about um debauchery but when you you know if i actually lived through it i'd have to have a shower for a month you know i just couldn't just you know if you read about stories where people are like taking a lot of drugs or drinking heavily (coughs) and you know it's it kind of sounds romantic until you read the details and then you're like no yeah you don't get the smell yeah you don't get the smell in the book (laughs) so yeah you've got like dylan and the band and woodstock van morrison also went there you know because you got to get your head together in the country traffic 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 is still still a couple of tv shows in england i know that are uh hey city folk go to the country Mm -hmm. and you you don't realize the problem is you you're going with you yeah you know so that's right yeah yeah. as cheeky chesterton went said the british love the love the country so much they're killing it but uh yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, traffic were the first. Yeah, Berkshire poppies going to Berkshire to. Well, it, it, it kind of worked for them. That's why I think a lot of other bands jumped into actually doing that, yeah. actually going back to nature. Yeah, because it worked for them. But uh, I know Led Zeppelin would do like writing 
Yeah, they go to Brawny Yard. Yeah, they, they would go off somewhere to write songs yeah. and sit around a fire and, and stuff. But, of course, they would have the drugs brought into them. By, <laughs> yeah, know, there was under, helicopters at un, that point. Yeah, <laughs> flown by underage girls and they had the whole thing. Yeah. Exactly. That, but then we were in a, a 70s level of debauchery. So, so what's, what's interesting about, well, the whole White Album period, I think, is interesting because it's such a, everything's changing for the Beatles at this time. Brian's gone. And when I was thinking about this the other day, I've always argued that George Martin is the fifth Beatle. That's been my long-time argument. But I have to say, looking at the Beatles' history very closely, which I've been doing through doing this podcast, I have to say that I'm going to go with anyone who says that Brian was the fifth Beatle. I'm just going to agree with you. Like, if, so you're arguing with yourself. Right? I'm arguing with myself because okay. without Brian, the Beatles fell apart. I don't think they would have fallen apart without George Martin. I think they could have carried on recording, whether themselves or hiring other people like Glenn Johns to come in and help them. But once Brian was gone, you're disagreeing with me or making well, a case? Well, no, I, I, the, the only thing is there's no way of proving that. And I kind of would agree. Well, I will prove, like for, prove it to for, you because no, Brian no, died and the Beatles fell apart. But it could be that he was not going to be able to help them much anymore and it, then wouldn't have. Yeah. And then the same thing would have happened. Yeah. He wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. Or even if he wasn't in the state he was in, yeah. it's possible that they would have just been – had outgrown anybody being able to tell them what to do and then it's, they it's get possible their- okay i'll agree with you that it's possible but the thing is is that un- unlike anyone else around them including george martin brian was there at the very beginning of the band i no, mean I, I i agree He's i mean he he was he was organically connected to them in a way that no one else could and you know and what happened to paul was paul was put into to brian's place Without having Brian's authority, do you know what I mean? Like well, Brian was given keep, authority by the band. Yeah, no, it was. There were divisions with between the four of them mm-hmm. that just because Paul was just well, I'll take control, and they yeah. didn't want to see it happen. Yeah, but, you know, the same thing happened with my little. Yeah, I, I won't go into it, but uh, and a long time ago. Yeah, where you know one of the participants, this is before Paul. Yeah, just didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, and I was put in the position of well, I want to keep doing it, so then he would be doing like as little as possible, passively aggressively. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 you know it's a dynamic between people. Yeah. I, I no, I agree. Uh, Brian Brian Epstein was more the fifth Beatle when they recorded uh, uh, "Hey Jude" without George Martin. Yeah. Than than George Martin. Yeah. That's yeah. what I say. Because yeah, yeah. It, it, it it's more than just you know, you George to... Martin musically did all kinds of stuff for them, mm-hmm. but some stuff he had nothing to do with. Well, I mean, he was he was very important. Let's not gloss over it he was very important to their development when but, he when they started with him but because he could you know, write arrangements mm-hmm. and was classically that, trained but also that he uh, gave them their head that he let them that he instead of forcing them to do the mitch murray yeah, song he let yeah, them know, do their they, own music yeah. and well no he had good ears but mm-hmm. he 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 they they i mean they didn't care that he was this music guy they cared that he'd worked with the goon show yeah that's, that's what right. they cared about, <laughs> yeah. which turned out to be very applicable to a lot of the later stuff yeah exactly yeah. another yeah. reference look up the goon show <laughs> yes very there. good show and so yeah i just brought that up because you know at this time the beatles are trying to run apple you know and so it's that's causing conflict between them it's not just musical conflict it's business conflict it's you know who wants the responsibility you know it's one thing to think well i'm going to be you know brian's gone we can manage ourselves you know, 
there's not that much to do. Then you discover, oh my gosh, there is a million things that I have to do. There's a million decisions that have to be made that payroll and phone calls and what's happening in the States and what does a record company need and all these little details that they never before had to deal with because Brian and his staff dealt with all these And at the issues. same time, they were trying to give away money to to anyone who had a good idea <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. to play some music. They, That's right. They, so they, they put all this no pressure idea. on themselves. Yeah. yeah. Brian yeah. would never have gone for that. Not in you that know, way. He but, would have... but they just didn't know what they were doing. And they never did from the beginning. You no. know, they invented the, the modern, you know, music business as they were going. Because yeah. they were this unprecedented thing, like four Elvis Presleys plus other <laughs> yeah. Yeah. beyond that. Yeah. And it just uh, exploded an explosion of merchandise and ways to make money yeah and they had to figure out how to negotiate contracts from nothing yeah from like you know here you know uh, you guys bend over to <laughs> to like you know they had to have the beatles so they had to have contracts with the beatles so the contracts for the beatles got better yeah and it yeah. was all done totally as they went i mm -hmm. mean to, to the point where you know paul still doesn't own a whole bunch of his own songs you know, Which like, is outrageous, considering uh, where they started from and the knowledge, even then, that surrounded them. They still were um, vulnerable to people, you know, exploiting well, they, them. And they, there was no, they just wanted to be the Beatles, mm -hmm. so they were the Beatles, and <clears throat> yeah. stuff happened. And, yeah. And, but the repercussions just carry on to this day. Sure. So, so, I mean, the Beatles are fighting over Apple. George Martin is, is he's withdrawing. Like at this time, I mean, it's hard to conceive of another time, another album where George Martin would have just left and gone on vacation for two weeks. But he did. He just left. I mean, the album took a long time to record. It took about six months. So you can see at some point he needed a break. But um, that wouldn't have happened in the past. So George Martin was withdrawing. And so, so the Beatles were having to fill that vacuum, you know. And so Paul steps into that void, you know, because and because he's in he's in the vicinity of the studio and and john and george are, and ringo are out in Esher, out in the suburbs in their big country mansions and then and then uh so that's going on and then you've got then you just have like all the interpersonal things in the band that are just causing all this pressure on them i mean right just before uh, paul records mother nature's son george without warning goes to greece george george harrison just leaves He's probably totally frustrated after 102 takes of not guilty. <laughs> so he leaves. And so that's, so then you have, uh, Paul, or you have Paul working in one studio on Mother Nature's Son. And then you have John and Ringo doing the overdubs for your blues at the same time. And it's reported that at that, at that session, uh, while Paul was recording, John and, and Ringo came in. And then what was a happy session just became like totally fraught. Just the tension was just like palpable. And because John hated, Paul recording without the other band members. Like, he wanted to share in what Paul was doing, too. You know, like, it's interesting, like, if you listen to, this is unrelated, but if you listen to, uh, there's a, on Anthology, there's a, there's a tape of them doing Julia, and John is playing it, and then there's a part where he breaks down, and then Paul is giving this great, his, this great, um, you know, uh, words of, you know, encouragement, it's great encouragement from the control room, you can hear him over the, through the talkback. And you can hear this relationship between them, you know, that must have been vitally important for both of them. And what a betrayal it would have felt like to come into a room and have someone recording without you. Mm. You know, and, and especially doing uh, Why Don't We Do It In The Road, which was like totally up John Lennon's alley, which he would have loved to have been a part of. And he was cut out by Paul. To, that, to him, that's how it felt, right? 
to Paul, Paul is just this person that cannot wait. You know, it's the same thing that happened during Sgt. Pepper when he brought Mike Leander in to do the arrangement or for She's Leaving Home. on the White Album when he played drums on the, back in the USSR. And the well, but Ringo had, to be fair, Ringo had quit. Right? So yeah. he yeah, was gone but, for two but, weeks. But so. it's just, well, yeah, yeah. we played drums. Yeah, know. we've got to keep working. So, yeah, they did, yeah. And he also did Dear Prudence as well. With, I did the drums on that as well. All right, so let's move on to the next song, which is Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey. Which is a great song because it has a handbell in it. <laughs> it it's, is one of my favorite songs. It's like on a the great. Album. Touch. I like a lot of songs of this album, but that is probably it's probably a great, my second favorite. song. It's a great touch to the song. I would mean, like we were saying before, like the Be- the Beatles just seem to know how to arrange a song to its best effect, and and just that touch of the handbell in that song, it's just it's just wonderful. John's songs are really good on this album. Yeah, and his singing is really great. Really, really good. Yeah, like his singing on Julia. Um, Happiness is a warm gun. I'm so tired. This song, um, uh, the one that comes after, Sexy Sadie. This is beautiful singing on all those songs. It's such great control of. of yep. So um, I think they called it "Come On, Come On" while they were recording it. I think. Also, it was title. actually it was called "Untitled." Oh, that's not and, as good a title. So, but yeah, it's not a, as good. Not as good. The review Be- of this at the time in Rolling Stone. Yeah actually suggested Jan, is this John Winner's yeah, review? He, yeah, he suggested that maybe it was like a little nod of the the hat tip of the hat nod of the head to uh, the monkeys. I was going to ask oh, that. Really? But that seemed like a dumb question, so I didn't. Oh, you and should I've have asked it. There are no dumb questions. That's right. There yeah, are. and in that same review, uh, he suggested that he would bet something substantial that the guitar player on While My Guitar Gently Weeps was Eric Clapton, which you know he knew that. <laughs> you know, somebody told him yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wonder. I wonder if maybe that wasn't something. Well, Lennon himself says it was about him and Yoko, that everyone was down on Yoko, down on him and Yoko, didn't accept her. And so that song is kind of a... Is kind of like this sort of, you know, us against the world kind of a song. That scans And as let's well. face it, pretty much every song that John Lennon wrote from 68 till 1981 was, uh, or 1980 was about Yoko Ono, I would say. Is that not accurate, everybody? That's a bold statement. Well, if, if you couldn't think of lyrics, and there's a bunch of those demos where he just yeah. starts going, Yoko, Yoko. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He does. I can't argue either side of that. So. Um, but, uh, yeah, apparently everybody's got something to hide was a saying from the Maharishi. So that was something that he said. And then Lennon added the, except for me and my monkey. Paul McCartney wondered if it was about about Lennon's heroin use, which was, was going on, was ongoing at that time. So it's hard, it's hard to know. Like, Maharishi had something he, he'd, he liked to hide. Yes, that's the, right. The salami. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah... I'd, it's hard to what the one what I thought was interesting. This was the one song on the album that that they use very speeding. So it started off as which it, they've used a lot in the past. Yeah, they used a ton on Sgt. Pepper and Revolver, and and I bet so it was for that the clanging. Possibly, yeah, get that to, effect. To get, well, yeah, to get the exact like pitch. Yeah, because it. it started at it started at three minute over three minutes long, and then it was mixed down, and so and but at forty three cycles per second, and so then it was two twenty nine. So that's a lot. That's a that is a really that's a lot of speeding up, and then it was, and then it was, then another remix was done, and it took it down to two two twenty four. So yeah, but one of the few songs on the album where they they did do a very speeding, yeah, which I thought was I, interesting. I bet that's why to to make the to give pitch to the uh, clanging, so it'd be yeah in tune in tune with the rest of the. Okay, I will bow to your your superior knowledge of recording. Well, because <laughs> it is it is a note. 
Yeah, no, it is. That's it's right. Not yeah, just a, like it's a not a random. Yeah, sound. it's yeah. not a random, yeah. random. Sound. It's not like the fireman's bell in Penny Lane or something, where you're just ringing for a sound effect. No. it's an actual instrument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a great song. I mean, it's there's not much you can say about it. It's just like this really peppy, fast song. Yeah, it really starts great. Just makes goes makes good you happy to hear it. It's got a monkey involved. It's got a monkey involved. It has what a more do you bell. Want song. Let's go to another great song, "Sexy Sadie," originally written about the Maharishi. It was originally titled Maharishi. And it was the last song that Lennon wrote before he left Rishikesh. Okay. Yeah. And was so, it for someone specifically? About uh, someone specific? Yeah, the Maharishi. Yeah, it was about you the Maharishi. You of everyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah oh, the, demo, okay. the demo, he sings Maharishi. Yeah. And, so. and then there's some, in the bits and pieces uh, compilations that were put together for the Beatles during it, he actually sang some of his original lyrics to, to Paul in the studio. And they were, you little T, uh, who the F do you think you are? Who the F do you think you are? O U C word. That was his original lyrics. And it was about the Maharishi. Maharishi yeah. Wow, yeah. things went badly but when they Harrison, were there. Harrison, who never fully believed the stories about the Maharishi, and a lot of people who were there feel that that the those rumors were spread by this guy named Alec, Ma- Magic Alex, who was part of the kind of entourage of the Beatles at that time. Okay. He's supposed to be this electronics whiz who was going to build this fantastic studio for for the Beatles. And, um, yeah, so he was there as well. And, and there's a lot of feeling that he's, you know, to, in order to kind of control the Beatles, he, and get them away from the Maharishi, he fed them these stories that weren't strictly true. So whether that's true or not, I don't know. And it was never found out either way. I don't know if it's ever been. I, I, I don't know. I think, I think, uh. Did Mia Farrow ever say what happened? Because she well, was the one that was supposed to be. Can't, can't rely on her. No, she's not the. Um, she, yeah, she'd, she'd attribute anything he did to Woody Allen. So. <laughs> and the other person is named Magic Alex, and so it's hard to take That's, that. Yeah, it's hard to take either side, seriously. Yeah. So, what? Well, to, uh, Sexy Sadie, to me, that that's uh, uh, my favorite John Lennon song on the album. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. it's a beautiful singing job, and it's yeah. absolutely fantastic. And the, you know, the, the whole thing with the piano... Uh, he he wasn't much like really much of a piano player. In fact, Nicky Hopkins plays on uh, on Imagine. Yeah, for instance, yeah. there's your Nicky Hopkins right there. <laughs> but but he he would do like these simple <laughs> piano things that were actually really effective. Mm-hmm. And that one is really effective. You know, like if you're not very good on an instrument, then if you're not a, a superior musician will get bored and want to do something interesting, even if they're not that technically good. So they'll find something. Yeah, I, I think he was really good at that. But the whole, the whole, the the song is great. The performance is great. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting is Lennon, of course, we know is a huge Smokey Robinson fan, and so there's a, a Smokey Robinson the Miracle song called "I've Been Good to You," and it features a line: "Look what you've done. You made a fool out of someone." So it's so obviously bore that, and it has a Smokey Robinson element to it with a falsetto in in it. So I think that he was kind of, as usual, kind of harkening back to I the, would say the, you know that the falsetto t- sounds to me like the Beach Boys. Mm, okay, that, which would make sense because Mike Love was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, it certainly incorporated elements of the Beach Boys into back in the USSR. So why not yes. Sexy Sadie? Okay. Um, yeah. So this interesting one interesting thing about this song was it was um, they they rehearsed and recorded over two days and in one instance erased everything and started again and then started at one take 100 even though they'd only done 47 takes for whatever reason they just said take 100 and so the best take that was used for for the rest of the overdubs was 107 although 
probably that would be 54, I guess, but literally. But uh, a lot of fun with numbers on this album. Yeah, yeah. It's right, missing yeah. numbers. Yeah, but l- I I agree with. Yeah, I agree with you. It's I love the song, so it's hard to. Uh, there must have been some guy like Count Countington, or something. <laughs> just there counting. Well, they that's a it. ridiculous name. Anyway, we're talking about Magic Alex. Oh, sorry. Now, my... <laughs> count Count County County. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're we. I was already kind of talking during your blues about the change of the rock music scene from the pop quartet, from the Hollies, from the Beatles, from the, I guess well, the Rolling Stones count. Yeah, I guess the Rolling Stones were a, were a quartet. Because they had, even though there was five of them, there was one singer who were not playing an instrument. So they had two, they had a rhythm guitar player, lead guitar, bass, and drums. And occasionally, if the song had was in not a minor key, they had a piano player. And uh, so, you know, but we see now the switch of bands like, like Cream, The Who, Jimi Hendrix Experience, Blue Cheer, Led Zeppelin, uh, all these bands that were basically power trios, whether they had a singer that was, you know, outside of the... You know, didn't play an instrument like Robert Plant or Roger Daltrey. This was like a new kind of configuration of music that came about because of the high, you know, big amplification and the kind of the prevalence of the guitar as this new instrument. And I guess Paul McCartney was reading an article and, and now I've heard it being Guitar Player magazine, but that doesn't make sense to me. But he's reading in the magazine, uh, about Pete Townsend doing I, I Can See for Miles. And Townsend said it was this like huge noise, this big noisy construction, raucous song. And Paul McCartney had this idea in his mind of what this would be. Uh, he hadn't heard it. He hadn't he heard it. That's right. He's just reading about it. So he he got this kind of visual or audio image in his mind, and then he heard the song. And really, it's a very poppy, very straight ahead song. It's not really that crazy. I mean, it's a very, it's a very good song, but it's not loud and crazy. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, so he was kind of thinking, oh, well, it'd be fun to do that, but the Who have done it, so we can't. And then he heard the song and he said, no, the Who haven't done it, so we can. And so that was kind of the start of, of Helter Skelter. I, I, I wonder if he wasn't already working on it, though, because you hear the, the early versions, mm. and they're kind of like, you know. Yeah. Kind of. I actually love the early versions of it with the more bluesy, slower, yeah, yeah, slower I, kind of slow burn yeah, versions of it, I yeah, think are really good. Whereas, you know, Helter Skelter is that thing that is meant to be this unprecedented racket. <laughs> And, you know, well, uh, it, it this blew my mind that John Lennon is playing tenor sax on it, and and Mel Evans plays trumpet. Are uh, we are we on to Helter Skelter? Yeah, we're on Helter Skelter. We're now on Helter. Yeah, okay, good. And I can't I can't hear them in the song. I guess because it is a racket. It's they're just part of the general noisescape of it all. I guess I was pictured with this like you know, there's you listening to it, but there's also that uh, we always talk about that girl sitting on her bed. Yeah. With the pic the pretty pictures of the Beatles yeah. in front of her. She's got a John Kelly photograph. She's there and she's waiting for an, a nice Paul "I Love You" song to come <laughs> yeah. on, yeah. and then Helter Skelter comes on. What's uh, <laughs> what's that do to her? Well, how's her, that how's her, that work for her? Her boyfriend Charlie Manson comes over. <laughs> <and> <laughs> it explains then, it all to her. Yeah, he he has some suggestions and yeah. yeah so that's right because a helter skelter is a, sp- a spiral slide that's found in british amusement parks or fairgrounds oh is that right it is not a revolution of you know blacks and whites fighting and killing each other so that charles manson and his followers could emerge from their underground bunker to then take over the government so you're saying of the world. if a young charles manson had just gone to a british park Yes. Everything would have been Everything better. Everything would have been better. Right. Yeah. Listen to the words. Listen to the when words. To the or bottom, not been a crazy evil son of a... That was part of the... Either... That all, was, all those things. That was part of the... Part of the time was the, the acid guru. I mean, it was a big yeah. part of that. You know, as we end, ended the breakdown of, like, 
as we had this this counterculture, this microculture that had broken away from authority, you know, they found their authority where they wanted them. And so you had these weird people like Charles Manson, or even more in, inexplicable to me as someone like Mel Lyman from the Jim Queskin Jug, oh, Jug Band, who becomes this like guru of the band. He originally was a harmonica player. He wasn't even like a major guy in the band. Like that's like letting the bass player take over the band. Just gurus well, are a mistake. Period. Well, yeah, I, there's always going to be people who have uh, like strong personalities that other people are going to want to follow. And if the person with the strong personality uh, wants to exploit the followers, then that's going to happen. A lot of people just really like being told what to do. <laughs> I guess so. You know, it doesn't uh, matter what it is. Yeah, it's very comforting. So. This, by the way, is probably my favorite song on the album. Helter Skelter? Yeah. Wow, yeah, really? This does it for me, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It, I wouldn't put it very high. For me, it doesn't rate, rank that high. Cause no, I'm, I understand. I'm not a, I'm not a noise fan. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I like melody, so... And there's some bands I like that are just noise. I like, it, I like goes, the Stooges, it goes places but, that really work yeah. for me. Well, I, yeah. I do this uh, acoustic, just acoustic guitar and singing. Yeah. And it's still, you know. It's still a, it's still a racket. If you yell, it's, it's <laughs> Helter Skelter. You know? Well, apparently an early take of the song lasted 27 minutes. Wow. And incorporated elements of Blue Moon in it. And uh, it even featured the sound of the tape echo machine being rewound because it, it ran out during the the song and so the guys were like what are we gonna do what are we gonna do and they didn't know so they just rewound the tape echo and just started it again because the beatles could hear the echo in their in their headphones i just find it like by the by the time i've listened to the whole thing i'm very relaxed <laughs> it just takes you someplace yeah like, all right wow. okay it's, yeah it's that just blew out all the cobwebs everything's yeah, fine it's definitely not like i definitely would put it down down low on the totem pole of white album songs well uh things that are low on a totem pole aren't necessarily ranked less ah, than they, things up they, high on the okay. totem pole I, on well, my totem pole they are. if it wasn't for that whole charles manson thing i think people would put it really high in the uh, in the order of beatles rock songs okay as proof that they really you know could compete with you know their bands like cream and stuff were yeah. coming along mm-hmm. they were like virtuoso yeah uh, rock musicians, you know, bands of them, and the the Beatles, you know, well, d- does that make us like old, old, <laughs> old hat? Yeah, yeah, old hat, just like like the worst uh, thing to be, passe, you know, like yeah, or or you know, the Who, you know, the, the they're pretty a uh, pretty dynamic, powerful mm. bunch of players. Yeah, so you know, they they sh- they showed on that, that they can really like, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, like The Who featured a drummer who played one long solo through the whole song. And then the Beatles had a drummer who would not play solos, you know, so it's, yeah. he just was not interested in soloing. He did not see that as a drummer's role in a band, you know. That's, uh, Helter Skelter is one of the ones where the mono version is substantially uh, different. Substantially different. And interesting because it was mixed earlier. That That's the big difference. It was mixed in September and the stereo version was mixed in October. So there's like a month in between mixes, and I don't know if in that time they changed their mind of how they wanted the song to end, but couldn't be bothered to go back and and fix. Well, I think uh, because again, I think there's an edit in there. Okay. Like uh, when it comes back in, it's edited yeah. from something else. Okay. And I think they just left it. I know you're right because yeah. they were playing. It actually came in earlier in before take. What was take eighteen was the the version that was chosen to become the the one they built on. And so earlier in that, uh, they did another version where they had played three different times, including the 27-minute long one. And at the end of that, uh, Ringo threw his drumsticks across the room and shouted out, I've got blisters on my fingers. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was then incorporated. So, And they must have just, it, it was an edit, but I mean, they could have 
redone the mono version. But I wonder if mono had really had fallen well, that low in priority. That's what I've come to, to yeah. think, you know. I mean, despite the fact that I only heard it in mono for the first, you know, mm-hmm. first two Christmases. <laughs> uh, and it's quite listenable in that. In fact, yeah. what I was hearing was exactly what's on the mono version. Well, like, it, Revolution 1 and Revolution 9 are just mono versions of the stereo mix yeah and it, it loses a lot but you can still listen to it you know? we'll, we'll just say i mean most i think most people listening will know what it, what the difference is in the mono version the mono one ends at three minutes and 36 seconds the uh stereo version is four and four and a half minutes long and it features a fade out and then a fade in of more squalling noise and then it, you hear that kind of reverb guitar and then uh, Ringo yelling, I've got blisters on my fingers. Yeah, you don't get any of that on the mono You don't get any version. of that on the mono version. Sorry, wow. mono fans. <laughs> Sorry. Now, Sorry, mono now fans. And I can see why they're mono fans. And we were talking about this the other day, which was that when you're comparing the mono and the stereo, it's kind of unfair now because this, when they put out the, the new the new remastered versions, they did like a major overhaul of the stereo sounds. On the mono ones, you basically are just getting the original mono versions so that they didn't do any kind of major overhaul on those to me the you know sergeant pepper that mono is definitive not just because i bought the mono one in the first place yeah and the reason i bought it i bought it the day that i saw it in a record store and i could have bought sergeant pepper mono or sergeant pepper in stereo which i still didn't have i didn't have a stereo record player but the stereo version had this yellow strip across the top of that beautiful cover and the word stereo in the middle yeah but this yellow stripe at the top of that cover i mean there's no just looking at the covers well i want the one that looks better so yeah. that's why i bought it but i mean that at the time i i didn't know there was any difference mm-hmm. to me the sound of sergeant pepper is the, the the mono mix well the beatles were did the mono mix yeah. they did not do the stereo mix they, yeah they now can i ask you uh, i'm gonna go with a dumb question because sure. uh you know what there's i no think i'd like to let there yeah. is no such thing yeah. you're saying uh, a little earlier that ringo did not do solos is that true for uh, the whole uh, run of the Beatles. Even? Well, he was talked into doing the solo on on carry that weight. The why end. I'm why I'm asking is just I remember the very end. clearly an uh, uh, an SCTV. What's it? The end. Just on the end. Okay. Yeah, an SCTV sketch where it was Ringo doing a uh, it was it was someone as Ringo uh, doing a song and he yeah. did a. Uh, a drum solo. Okay. And I remember like watching it with you and you going, ah, that's the solo from something. Yeah. So, uh, from the end. It was from the end. Yeah. Okay. Well, they talked him into it because the idea was he would do a little drum solo and then each of them would take turns playing little guitar solos. Yeah. Which is what follows. So, so yeah, there's three. So now the solos. SCTV sketch makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, this yeah. Is, they're just okay. being typically like obsessively accurate. Even though they didn't know that people would be poring over it many years later, <laughs> they just had to do it right. No one predicted these podcasts happening, and people will be poring over these podcasts in the future with their own podcasts about podcasts. Sure, and those people are very sad, and probably be brains in jars, frankly. Well, let's move on from from Helter Skelter, just because you know I think a song is okay, and um, <laughs> right, and let's go let's to fight about it. Let's no, go God. to the song called "It's Been a Long, Long, Long Time." It was called that for a short while, then it was called Long, Long, Long. Okay, that's which is also a long title. Long, Long, Long. Yeah, which I gotta say, I love this song. <laughs> I just think it's a wonderful. It's one of those George songs that are kind of like a dual song. It can be like a song to God, or it could be a song to to a lover. You know, it, and it could be both. It doesn't. I, maybe he didn't differentiate them in, in that way. You're looking. David's looking. Uh, well, you can have sex with girls. That's true. I, I think yeah, I so. think you should probably make a choice. Yeah. Because neither God <laughs> nor the girl will be happy with that if you're going like, this could also be to God, or, you know, you're praying, and yeah. you might also be 
talking to the girl was in the God saving game. himself for marriage. <laughs> it's very similar to uh, Dylan's Sad-Eyed Ladies of the Low, Lady of the Lowland, which I didn't realize until I read it somewhere, and then I listened to it and I went, oh yeah, it is. It's just pitched a little higher for George, but it's very similar, and but not as long. <laughs> and then well, it, has, it has that cool that guitar uh, lick that comes in yeah. that's almost feeding back, mm-hmm. but isn't. It's yeah. just like a hollow body uh, acoustic, uh, yeah. acoustic with a, a pickup. And yeah. it's, it's right on the verge of fe- feeding back. You know, they, they were, you know, talk about obsessive about details. Like they, you could tell they wanted to do something different yeah all the time yeah and, and to sound up, a certain way yeah, yeah like that's that's ordinary you know not guilty would have been the most ordinary sounding song on you, the album you say that album. but it would have been a the reason it sounds the reason it sounds ordinary now is because it kind of anticipated a 70s sound in the 60s like the well, guitar well, sound on that no, song he, is very he recorded it like in the late I know, in seventy nine, yeah, late seventies, and it doesn't on sound George like Harrison that. on George it, Harrison. Yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. like a mellower take on it. Just, the, I mean, it's. I think it's really good, and I think they could have snuck it on there, like I said. Mm. But, but it would have been like, like it just sort of doesn't have a. Uh, it, it's not that dynamic. Yeah, it kind of you know he sings quieter and mm-hmm. then he sings louder and yeah. and it's a little clumsy maybe. <laughs> uh, you know, like something well, like like. The song we will get to shortly uh, on side four is sprightly and lively and funny. Yeah. And not guilty is kind of like a little mopey. A little mopey and a, a little, little had a little too much George in it. With a that little samey samey. <laughs> yeah, it's, maybe it was a song that needed to percolate a bit longer and it's too bad that it was it was not taken up again later for, for Abbey Road or something. Well, I think they could have done it with a different sound. Yeah. They probably would have if they wouldn't weren't exhausted from over a hundred takes <laughs> <laughs> trying to find it and yeah and it's partly on george because you know you were kind of running your own your own sessions what's interesting with long 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 is that at the end of it they you know speaking of you know the beatles relied on their skill but also on luck and there's that moment where paul plays a low note on the on the hammond organ he was playing and this bottle of of blue nun wine vibrated on the leslie speaker cabinet and made this weird kind of noise and they really liked it so they mic'd the bottle and redid it so that they could have it and then Ringo played or Ringo uh, overdubbed a, a little snare roll over at the same time to kind of pump it give a little bit of a bump and then George gives that little kind of ghostly wail and Paul changes the major to a minor and it just has this kind of interesting kind of fall to it and that gu- guitar that yeah distant guitar strum and the yeah. clunk but yeah. i mean all through there's like like short you know things like wild honey pie mm-hmm. little short bitty things yeah. at the end of glass onion being yeah like, where'd that come from dun, but there's dun, also little dun, bits dun, of yeah. things they were working on and, you know, there's not just the songs. All the way through, there's little uncredited bits of, what what was that? You know, like yeah. the thing right before Revolution 9. That's obviously some other song, mm-hmm. though it's technically a part of uh, you know, I Cry will. Baby Cry. Oh, okay. But, yeah. but you know, like, like you know, they, it, it's an album. It's, it's a bunch of songs strung together. And they were, you know, they were just going for something interesting. Yeah. You know, something, you know, a, a sequence... That was interesting, and well, let's let's tack that on, you know. So, speaking of long, 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 this show, <laughs> the needle moves along, <laughs> lifts up. We're a finish side one or side three. Okay. Now let's flip it over, and we'll start right. with side four. Sounds good. And this is, I guess, where if you, 
it were a contemporary to this to this album, you would have been confused by this song. Because you'd have gone, so, my record's defective. Sounding what? so much like another song, but not quite like that song. Because of Revolution When. So we started. Now, what were the differences between the songs? Well, much slower. This song is that kind of strummed and very kind of bluesy. Well, yeah, it comes in like it goes. But that guitar comes in and it's that. It's the same guitar that you hear so loud and distorted on the single version, which is, you know, six months ago. And so it, you know, it ties in not just because it's the same song, but they're like, like giving you this alternate view of the same song. Yeah. You know, which is interesting. It's it is an interesting. interesting thing to do. And I think it's a song that Lennon only could have written in Rishikesh. Because it's almost like he's sitting on this mountain and he's looking down on all this upheaval and changes that are happening as, as the 60s moved out of the summer of love into this kind of, this, this new kind of student upheaval. This, you know, there's riots, there's protests, the, the Tet Offensive had happened and it kind of brought the Vietnam War, you know, right out into the open you know instead of this being kind of this you know slightly talked about war it suddenly became this big thing because you're seeing you know this for people who don't know the tet offensive was uh in vietnam that the tet holiday was traditionally uh was a time of um uh, ceasefire ceasefire, yeah and so but what happened was the the viet the the uh viet cong decided to mount this gigantic offensive against all these different uh, military targets on the Tet holiday. And so it was just a huge massacre. And it was broadcast for everyone to see. And so people in America were seeing their children dying right in front of their faces. And not only were they seeing it, university students who were nearing the end of their university or people who were leaving high school were suddenly faced with the possibility that they were going to go there too to face this. And so uh, the feelings about the war changed radically in 1968. And so you had all kinds of student protests, and not just protests, but violent protests, which culminated in the uh, Democratic Convention in Chicago, and there's basically a police riot, and the police just attacked anyone and everyone, including Democratic delegates, with truncheons. And it was just like a major, you know, this insane slaughter of, of the innocents. And so <clears throat> the problem with that was it happened like two days or just like a little bit before Revolution came out, the, the John Lennon, the single. And so it really made, it really uh, made Lennon and the Beatles look bad in the eyes of the new left and the sort, you know, sort of the, 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 uh, vanguard of, of the, of the, uh, new kind of new society of the sixties, you know. And so. Why did it make them look bad? Cause he said, count me out. In. Out. Uh, no. That comes in. In the original, in the original oh, okay. single. By the time, because this song became, so the interesting thing is Revolution 1 came before the single. Mm-hmm. And when Revolution 1, he was still, he was still kind of on the fence. He was still not certain where he stood. He was, he understood, he sympathized with, with this violent, this, this, you know, desire to violently overthrow the government and stuff like that. But at the same time, he felt like, well, what is he, what's the alternative that you're, that you're giving us? Like, if all you want to do is just tear it down, well, that's no good. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's yeah. The single version is this conservative. Yeah. Like for at the time, I mean, when I heard Revolution One, I went, "Oh, he's he also singing in." Yeah. He sings out, and then he sings in. Yeah. Now, don't you think he could have done that later? Like, gone. I'm I'm gonna add in as well. I'll leave the out. But no, but by that time, he was firmly against violent revolution. What he said was, if you 
I'll be there if it's peace and flowers. I will be there on the on the barricades. But if it's violence, I will. I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. That was his. That was his take on it. But in and I mean that's but in is there. That's why. He put it in. But he did it. He did it before he did revolution. Well, I, don't, I don't know. See this. I don't like. There's no way of knowing. He could have. He could have because they didn't release it till six. Well, well yeah. Five six months later, he they could have gone. Well, we're going to put this version on. And I'm going to add. It, it's more tranquil Maybe. sounding. Like yeah. the other one sounds more like a it, call it to could, arms. It could for be. Sure. It could be. Except what he's singing is yeah. something fairly. You know, like status quo. Well, he doesn't. He does well, yeah. not status quo, but he doesn't want a violent revolution. Yeah, yeah. In the more pastoral sounding one, he's he's you know <laughs> he's in, he's more ambiguous. You he's, know, yeah, either more... way, like there's he's he's trying to not say something quite so definite about yeah. revolution. And then, of course, later on the side, you have the other thing called revolution, which is certainly open to interpretation. Well, that's but, yeah. What's interesting, like revolution, the single. Which I love this quote was called the a lamentable, lamentable petty bourgeois cry of fear. Yeah, that's you called how, it that last week. That's how it was. No, it's it? someone yeah. else. No, it was. Uh, whereas when Revolution One came out on the White Album, people saw that as a, a recantation by by Lenin and him joining them again on on the barricades to violently overthrow. But he wasn't really interested in that. Like you can see in his his view version of like of peaceful protests the the bed-ins and the bag yeah. bagism and stuff like that it was more about this kind of dada jokey you know kind of uh, performance pieces well, rather than a celebrity to yeah to get to, because people were paying attention do something just yeah you know crazy and fun that someone else wasn't doing yeah you mm-hmm. know uh, you know at this time uh rock criticism which hadn't existed like five years earlier was starting up there was this and it was coming out of the counterculture and you know like you know reviewing rock albums you know like they sort of made it up as they went along and came up with these standards and stuff but but my my main beef with with uh reviewing rock music it's still you know they still sort of try to review pop music but you know now it's like this is this song's really good it's got a really dancey groove or something yeah. they've gone completely away from talking about anything that's in the the, the content, text of yeah. the lyrics yeah. whereas when this started up it, it's much easier to write about the words so the review would be more about the words than the sound because you know how do you review sound it's it's hard to review sound but we're doing that right now it's hard. <laughs> it's taken a long time. I know. That's it's why taken, it's taken a long time. That's why this. Yeah. That's why an ambulance is coming in the yeah, background right. for us because we're, we're going to be oh, passing out any second. I thought somebody was playing Revolution Nine really <laughs> yeah. loud yeah. right outside the window. Um, so yeah, I you know like like uh, you know reviewing the words. You know, it, it's not about the words. It's a, it's about the sound. Yeah. You know, the words are a part of the 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 message. But the sound is the real message, okay. and and that's, that's well, that's what, what you started started off the podcast many podcasts ago, yeah. saying that you don't care about the lyrics. I b- for very the most rarely, part. yeah. You just listen but, to the music. Besides to sing along with them, the lyrics aren't that important to me. 
I, yeah. I, I by myself like when the lyrics are good and amusing oh, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. But uh, you know, and I, you're a songwriter as well, so you must care about uh, lyrics to the point where you write lyrics. That otherwise, you could just do instrumentals. And... I, I just write any old crap. <laughs> well, fair enough. Then. But the, the once thing again, is, that's uh, no fun if you want to check out any of that. The music crap. lasts longer than the words do, though. Like the words finally just become the text of the of the music. Okay. And it, it's always more. You know, it's got to sound good. Yeah. Like whatever it is, uh, if I'm going to like something, I'm going to like how it sounds. I don't care what the message is. And that that is, I mean, people who sort of, they, they sort of like music, but they don't care that much about it, tend to just sort of be, you know, I like the beat or that song, you know, made me cry or something. So I well, like it. I want to download it on iTunes. That's, that's part of it. But also people who don't care that much about music also tend to be more about the lyrics. So I've had people tell me, I will not, before I buy an album, I read the lyrics. And if I don't approve of the lyrics, I will not buy the album. And to me, that's like, what? Like, that's, what? <laughs> it's music. It's music. So I know, but you if know. you're, like, I had a Christmas where we, we had Purple Rain playing. And okay. uh, you have that in front of Grandma and yeah. uh, what happens in the hotel lobby. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, the early part of Christmas is ruined, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. And then we're all looking at our shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we gotta wait for this to go. So sometimes it's good to uh, depends who you're playing in front of. But yeah. if you're getting it but for yourself, but if she hadn't been paying attention to the lyrics, everything would have been fine. Oh, I think once a certain word comes up, <laughs> boom! Uh, all of a sudden, the elderly ears uh, can well, hear everything. I'm gonna go on a limb here and just tell you guys that the lyrics to "Stairway to Heaven" aren't that great, but the song is fantastically great. Right, because you can dance with a girl for a long period of time. You got a chance <laughs> for something to happen. I yeah. never. Well, I yeah. Well, I well. I mean, the, the words don't mean anything. They don't no. have to mean anything. That's they right. Just carry the melody. They just melody. carry the melody. So exactly. you think of the melody and you're thinking of the words, but you're not really thinking of the words. Exactly. You're thinking of the melody. Do you exactly. think it don't matter? Doesn't matter in a song like this, though. Like, if if you are a young person and you well, you're on the edge of kind of revolutionary thought, you know, do you think a song like this though might push you in either direction? No, I don't actually. I I think that most most things we do in our life we do with our minds made up. Towards it, towards something. So what we like so about it. You don't think it, the Beatles influenced people with their music towards no uh, to buy clothes. To buy clothes. <laughs> there, 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 there never has been a, a type of popular music that wasn't that didn't teach young people who like the music how to dress. Okay. I so you know the the I want to dress like I'm going to go storm the ramparts. Someone might. <laughs> Yeah. decide upon mm -hmm. hearing that thinking it was a call to action they wouldn't go i'm gonna go you know i i just i'd, I'd like a t-shirt that's sort of you know ripped up that says you know i don't know well, what what kills me about this song and about revolution is that and revolution nine is that lennon you know in 1972 you know he had to recant you know, he had to do this public show trial uh to the for this maoist uh magazine called red mole and in this interview, and he had to like apologize for revolution, apologize for not being in, and you know say that uh, tell everyone that Revolution Nine was about a revolution, which I prefer your view of it, David, where you think it's like well, the sort of musical yeah. musical thing, and that has really nothing to do with revolution at all. It's more about like it's more it's more about a revolution of the mind, as Ian McDonald calls it in the book Revolution of the Mind. You know where it's just. An expression of Lenin's conscious subconscious. Yeah, it's really organized noise. Yeah, and it's and it's got a design to it. Yeah, and you know, but it, it's designed by a Beatles, so it has a particular appealing quality to it by someone who knows how to, like, it's different. Like, if you listen to Stockhausen, uh, or you listen to, um, I can't think of off the top of my head. I can't think of any other music people who did music concrete concrete at the time in the '60s. But if you listen to like 
Gesang der Jünglicke or Hymnen or something like that, they are not that appealing sounding compared to Revolution 9, which really has an interesting flow and, and works because it has a sense of humor and it has a, you know, a whimsical quality as well as a kind of eerie quality to it. And then that way it works. Whereas when you listen to, to Hymnen or something like that, they're very political and very cynical. And they're kind of this lie there, you know. They're not. They're not as interesting as We're Revolution kind of Nine to me. Now to that song, though, right? Yeah, we better so, not get there. Let's yeah. stay with. Let's stay with Revolution One. So, um, so yeah. So when they did this song, and you kind of brought this up, David, they did a version uh, that was. Uh, it was actually basically take eighteen, and it was about ten, ten and a half minutes long, and so. And basically, at about the four-minute mark, it became this kind of audio freakout with Lennon saying "all right" and "write a lot" and stuff like that. And so, and then just playing the music. And yeah, so you then, can hear some of that. In that's right. And so they took, so he took that part, and then they added a bunch of stuff to it. So he and Yoko added uh, like a, a bunch of kind of random phrases, like uh, Yoko saying "you become naked," mm-hmm. and um, Paul McCartney and George Lennon in high-pitched voices saying "Mama Dada" over and over again during it. And if uh, I'll post it on the Facebook page, but you can find it on YouTube if you look up uh, Revolution Take 20. You'll find it there because the final mix down of it was Take 20. And so, but what happened was it was way too long to be on the album. It was way too long to be a single. And like I said, when we're talking about Revolution, this was really important for Lennon for this to be a single, for this to be out there in the most popular format still over records was a 45. And so he wanted it to be in this instant, instantaneous message format. And so... What he did was he took, so he took the six minutes off of the, off of this version, and that became the bass for Revolution 9. And then the horns and the electric guitar part were dubbed onto this version of, of Revolution. So this became Revolution 1. Of course, when they started, it was just called Revolution. But then when, when the Beatles decided they didn't want it to, uh, so he still wanted to be the single. It was George and, and Paul who said no. They put the kibosh on it becoming a single. But John persevered and then recorded the third version of it as the, the you know the more punchy version that could be a single, and so yeah, so it's interesting if you listen to that version of it. It is really, it's actually really interesting. It's it's kind of fun and very uh, some of it, but very little of it actually is ends up in Revolution Nine in in a way that's audible. Like so, yeah, it's worth hearing. Right. Yeah, that's really there's yeah. little little vocal. Mm-hmm. Bits. Well, I mean, in Revolution Nine, there's uh, I think there's a little there's a little piano thing. Uh, um, that's uh, sort of like the beginning of uh, Martha, my dear. And that's yeah. probably what it is. Just something from that session, little piano yeah. thing, just added in. You Could know, be. But, you know, the, because the Beatles, okay, the White Album was this. Okay, let's make it none more white, none more simple. <laughs> this, you know, we we've taken the psychedelic thing as far as we can go. But it, the White thing is kind of a Trojan horse. Yeah. Because at the end of the album comes something that goes beyond anything psychedelic anybody had tried to, you know, self-indulgently do. Yeah. yeah. No, not even with with instruments. The instruments were pieces of tape. And it was a lot of work. Yeah. That's the thing. It's not just a free form. It's an organized thing. Yeah. Yeah. And they did it and they snuck it in. I still say that's, you know, what the White Album is all about. (laughs) It's culminating in that. Okay. Well, we're heading towards it. But let's talk about the next song, which is Paul's Little Pastiche of the Past. Honey Pie. Does anyone have anything to say about this song? Besides the fact that it's bouncy, makes you tap your foot. 
And they, I, li- I like it. Your I dad like, likes I it. I like old timey songs. Yeah, I me like, too. Uh, I enjoy it. It seems like you sing it through one of those rounded uh, microphones. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is always fun. The Rudy Valley style. Yeah, megaphone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. megaphones. Yeah. yeah. So the kids buying the vinyl now because buying vinyl is hip. Mm-hmm. I wonder what they make of that. You know, the the thing at the beginning where all of a sudden, you know, that now oh, she's hit the big time. <laughs> and just before you, you you hear that, you hear the sound of a scratchy record. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they think. This thing's defective. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Well, I think they get know, it. I think well, they get it. They know scratches from. They know scratches from. Uh, they know scratches no, from do, movie trailers because something's going along and then yeah. record scratch has to happen and then I feel good comes <laughs> but, on. But so do, they know it from that. But do they know? Do they know 78s though? Actually, you know, the first record player I owned... No, they don't. I'm going to say, no, yeah. they do not. I'm not you know, I, or I, I had no record. Uh, like, I was into music from the time I was, like, three. I would, I would or two. I, w- I would cry if uh, Michael, like Michael Rowe, the boat ashore, they, by the, the pop folk version by the Highwaymen, it was a big, big hit at the time. And they tell me, I don't recall this, but I would cry if it didn't play on the radio before I had to go to bed. So... Oh, so wasn't that big, nice? Big so, baby. But in in the house, all, all we had... He was literally a baby. Leave oh, that's true, that's true. A, a toddler. Um, <laughs> you bully. But at, at the time, uh, all we had was that, that thing I would hook the alligator clips up to the speakers uh, um, to, to record on a cassette. All we had to play records on was that, and it only played 78s. Okay, so in 64, no, 63, uh, my dad bought a record player and it would play 45s and 78s and it had no volume control it had the speaker was in a, a was a little round speaker in the tone arm right above where the needle hit the record and there was a packet of loud needles and a packet of soft it said needles that were skinnier so you had two volumes you could select, mm. and that was it. And I got a, 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 the first two records that I ever owned were uh, um, the single of uh, She Loves You with I'll Get You on the other side, and Please Mr. Postman with Roll Over Beethoven on the other side. Those were the first two. And uh, the next year, uh, we got a record player, the one that I would play the White Album on a few years later, that would also play 33 and a third uh, uh, records. And then the first records that I ever owned were Beatlemania with the Beatles, equivalent to with the Beatles on, on CD now, and uh, Twist and Shout, uh, Canadian compilation. Yeah. You know, that's... Uh, so, what was my point? <laughs> <laughs> you just like the sound of the 78 on this song. That's what you're saying. But yeah, I Sarah know. what the kids today uh, don't yeah, know about Yeah, the, do, do they it's know a fun about little the trick. It's a fun little trick. What other interesting thing about the song is it was recorded at Trident, even though by that point they had the 8-track at Abbey Road, so they just kind of went there for the heck of it. I don't know. Oh, if, okay. It's a nice, clean-sounding uh, And they had recording. booked, they had block-booked huge amounts of Abbey Road's time, so there was no reason for them to... Uh, to go to Trident, but yeah, I guess it is a nice sounding song. Um, I love the next song. Okay, I just have one thing really oh, sure, fast. Sure. Honey pie doesn't mean anything dirty, does it? No. You know, it's not like jelly roll get or any of that. Get business. your mind out of the gutter. I'm just saying, I've been fooled before by this kind of thing. I mean, she's a working girl, so I thought maybe there was something. I think it means in a good way. I feel scolded. All but right. <laughs> I, I, will, I, I don't doubt that there's a relation to the wild honey pie that appears on side one. Yeah. Like, I mm-hmm. bet it it came out of that. Yeah. Like, they're going, boy, that's 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 a nice uh, old-fashioned song you got there. Can't we do something, like, that's more suggestive, maybe? Because honey pie should be dirty, shouldn't it? 
And it seems like it seems like if it was a blues musician singing about a honey pie, it means something. That's well, wild honey pie does sound dirty. It does. Yeah. So I, I think. So I thank it's, you. It's my And uh, there we go. All right. So <laughs> yeah. once again. Um, Okay, let's let's just say I I just I love this song Savoy Truffle. I think this is a a fantastic song. Mm-hmm. I just like how squished it is. Like it's so compressed that everything just sounds like a little buzzing bee. I just think it's fantastic. Well, the, yeah, those the the saxophone. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I thought the Good Morning Good Morning has you know compression kazooish <laughs> saxophones, but this it turns it. <laughs> I, I, it turns it into a, a, an absolute plus yeah. that they sound that way. And George wanted it that way. Yeah. And he actually apologized to them for how he made them sound. Because he said, you guys played really great. Like, you're, what you did was fantastic. And I'm sorry, but this is what it's going to sound like. And he played it for them and they, they weren't very happy. But uh, apparently uh, inspired by Eric Clapton's love of chocolates. <laughs> and basically, most of the lyrics for the song come from a box of Macintosh's Good News uh, chocolates. So he just took the names of the various chocolates. I think two were made up, coconut cream and one other one were made up. But the rest of the uh, cherry cream, cherry cream and coconut something or other. Yeah, Montelimar is, is still a flavor yeah. in a dairy box. Yeah, yeah Good News was a, a type of um, a brand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, you went kind of like... Uh, what do you get now? The the pot of gold or whatever it's called. The yeah, that style. Yeah, pot of gold, black magic. Yeah, those yeah. kind of ones where you give them to people because you don't want to eat them yourself. So someone gives them to you and then you pass them on to the next person. Well, you, I couldn't disagree more. I don't I'm need. Trying all, to, I'm trying to give up sugar right now. I don't need so all this, this cream chocolate. For me to have. I don't need all this cream chocolate. Well, speaking of overly sweet things, George does get in a little dig at the hated Obladio. Yes, he does. Oh, what <laughs> yes, is that? He does. What's his uh, dig in this? He thing? says you you all know Obladio Oblada. But can you but, show me where you are? Or can you show me where you it's are? It's in the last, yeah, uh, yeah. last bridge before the last. It's bridge. kind of a little dig at the. Maybe it may not even be a dig at Obladio, but it'd be a reference to the fact that life doesn't doesn't necessarily go on. <laughs> life also has a limited well, time. That's, a, that's that's interesting. Like earlier on, we have green uh, green onion, mm-hmm. where it's like uh, you know about this and you know about that yeah. and you've heard about this. That's now right. They're even referring to songs within the album itself. Within the album itself, yeah, it shows you how long the album was. That songs are written. That's right. For yeah. yeah, just to make sure you remember songs from side <laughs> one. Don't mention let's, them on side. Let's bring four. it back. I I, I want to you know to me Monty you know well uh, Monty Python kind of was the the Beatles of comedy. Yeah, I think. I think that's indisputable. English comedy guys, thus Beatles. Yeah. I always, I always wished they would do uh, a version of Savoy Truffle, or someone would, with the you know crunchy frog. <laughs> and those. I, 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 yeah. I see no reason why that couldn't happen. It would have been I, I may end up doing you it kids, myself. Yeah, I know. You the kids out there, surprise, you all do mashups. Yeah. That's what the kids do. They do mashups nowadays. Mash it up. Yeah, mash I it think up. George Harrison was quoted as saying that he thought Monty Python was, was. the Beatles of the. Uh, yeah. And he was right. The other he thing put of, his money where his mouth is. You know, the, the Ruddles, is, you, watch, you watch it now, it was made in the 70s, and everything is recreated just really exactly. Mm hmm. And how were they doing that? They couldn't go rent the video. It's because they had an in with George, so they could, you know, uh, do you, get references. Such an in with George. George is in the the piece itself. He's in the Ruddles. That's, yeah, right. that's right. So so they could actually, you know, call it, the 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 Beatle aspects of it totally uh, stand up to modern scrutiny. 
because they were done right in the first place, and that's sort of amazing. Can't stress enough, if you don't know what the Ruddles is or you haven't watched All You Need Is Cash, uh, get to your YouTube, get to your local video store. It's now on uh, Blu-ray. It's, it's Blu-ray Blu now. It's Two of the three of us have them on Blu-ray. I don't know if that makes it... Does it make a difference on Blu-ray? Because it was originally for television, right? No, so, no it yeah. isn't at all. So save your money and get the original and uh, <laughs> mix it up. Um, so... This one, the, the horn arrangement wasn't by George Martin. Actually, he asked Chris Thomas to do the horn arrangement for this, which Thomas did not enjoy doing, apparently. I don't, I don't know why he didn't enjoy it. He said it was hard work, so I don't know. I think it would be hard work to live up to George's standard, George Martin's standards as, an, as a arranger. Because what's great about George Martin's arrangements is that he would always quote interesting parts of the song in his arrangements. You know, and he would find little details that he would bring into his arrangements that weren't necessarily obvious details. You know, it just wasn't just like the melody, but little little kind of improvised moments he would he would also bring into the into the arrangement. Well the horns are interesting in that because mm -hmm. they're they're in constant motion yeah. during the verse up until he gets to the end of the verse where he gets to the uh, you'll have to have them all pulled out. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the sound is completely different because the, the saxophones stop. Yeah. And it's just the guitars and that, you know, little blasts of high guitar. And he's he's also singing all of a sudden falsetto. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, texturally, it's, uh, it's... Interesting. And I, I enjoy the, I guess it would be like the Vox organ. It kind of it has that, uh, whatever, the organ that Chris Thomas added to it, I think is also very good as well. Um, it's a nice guitar solo by George it, as well. If anyone is interested in Chris Thomas, uh, one of our listeners posted, uh, thank you, Stuart, posted uh, a link to an interview between Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols and Chris Thomas. Of course, Chris Thomas produced Nevermind the Bullocks or co-produced it. And uh, so it's well worth uh, listening to that. It's got lots of fun anecdotes of doing the Beatles uh, White Album and also producing Pink Floyd and Roxy Music and the and Sex that's Pistols. On our, that's on our SneakyDragon.com page. It's on, what yeah. episode did he post It's that? on the, the last uh, White Album episode. Okay. So if you go to the or the Beatles Part 1, if you go to that, you'll find the link there. Well, in my opinion, now that yes. you mentioned the Sex Pistols, the <laughs> Sex Pistols were the new Beatles. Okay. Like, nothing to do with music, although Chris Thomas. Yeah. Right? But what... You know, the Beatles came from somewhere and they ended up somewhere and it was unprecedented. And then once the Beatles were no more, it was like, when's the next Beatles? Okay. Who are the next Beatles going to be? There were many like fine musical acts who sounded Beatle-ish. But I think as far as being something that, that uh, came out of nowhere and made their mark... In a Beatleish fashion, I think the Sex Pistols were it. Right down to what happened to them, like the the record industry had to crush them, so they self-destructed before that could happen, and that was it. But that's my opinion: is the Sex Pistols were the new Beatles. Right down to their influence was so vast and remained. You know, that's the last really influential uh, rock music thing, in my opinion, was the <laughs> Sex Pistols. I think they were the new Beatles. You can quote me on that. I will. There's I'll, a lot of I'll quoting. record you. I'll record yeah. you on that. Okay. Well, I don't have You're much. You're recording to... this? Oh my god. <laughs> I don't have much. I to... certainly hope so. Yeah. Could you imagine if you weren't? Start. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. This uh, we would. Uh, there would be a revolution. There would be jumping out the window. Yeah, revolution number nine would be happening right about now. <laughs> um, well, I really like the next song. I don't have much to say about it. Cry, baby, cry. I think it's a. I think like the. It's kind of like well let's let's bring up Snivel the last songs on it which are Blue Lust uh when things 
well, snivel. But then when things became hopeless, is that... An, well, so when things became hopeless is a line from Oh, Snibble, okay. There's one other song there, which is... Was uh, Somebody Else's Feelings, Blue Lust, um, When Love Turns to Shove. When Love Turns to Shove. Those three songs are kind of like, they sum up the whole album. And they just and this is what happens here. We get Cry Baby Cry, Revolution 9, and then Good Night. And this is like this perfect trifecta of songs that kind of bring out that bring out the album. Because Cry Baby Cry is an interesting... Lennon referred to it as garbage, but I disagree. Like, I think it's a really kind of cool, it sort of refers to nursery rhymes, but in this sort of Dylan-esque kind of surreal way, so it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, I always thought there is a suggestion of the children have taken over from the parents. The parents are now doing what the children want them to do. Okay. And, you know... That's that's what I think. If I listen to the lyrics, I probably would have known that. <laughs> and, and then and then the song ends, and there's this "Can you take me back where yeah, I came from?" Yeah. which is which was an improvised bit from the "I Will" yeah. sessions that Paul yeah. McCartney did. And then so that's brilliantly added. Like that's a, just a great touch, right? Like to well, think, you know, what would be good here. Remember that thing you did six months ago when you were just improvising and playing, you know, "Step Inside Love" and "Lost Paranoias" and all those sort of things. Let's let's bring that out and put it here. Like that's just great. That's, yeah, it just fades out. Real quick, yeah, and then and then into the the uh, you know music concrete and you know okay you want Beatles this is what the life of the Beatles is like and then it you know their lives have turned into you know the last thing you hear is the the crowd chanting it it's chanting something you can't tell what it is and then it stops and then it comes back and you can clearly hear it's block that kick. Yeah, yeah. Block that kick. So our lives are just sports. They are entertainment, <laughs> and, and it's it's to us it's insane racket coming at us from all directions. And sometimes it'll pause, and there's music, and there's people saying things, and we don't understand any of it, and it's all just this thing. Well, okay. I was going to say one thing about Krabby Be Cry, which is that it was during that session that Jeff Emmerich quit. And had a, he had enough of of the fighting and everything else and the, the disrespectful tone everything had taken on and he just he left he was gone for, he, didn't, he didn't he came back nine months later but he was gone for quite a while yeah. in Beatle time um, and as we've said earlier you dislike uh, babies crying he does you you do because you were slamming uh, David oh, that yeah. <laughs> is crying. that what I established yes um, but the thing that's interesting with the song is that it's basically because it was connected with Revolution One. It's basically the first song recorded for the album. Like, Revolution 1 and this song, Don't Pass Me By was recorded in the meantime while they were doing them, but they were being worked on all together at the same time. And it's just, it's just crazy. It's kind of like Tomorrow Never Knows. It's like, it seems crazy that the most outrageously different song is recorded first. Like, it just, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, you, you kind of think in your mind that they're going to build up, you know? Like, we're going to start here, then we're going to figure out that you can do backwards guitars, and then we're going to figure out how to do that. And then and then we're going to get to this. We're going to get, you know, not start with this crazy thing way up here, but work our way up to that crazy thing way up there. But once again, they just start with Revolution 9 and then finish the rest of the album around it. And so it informs the rest of the album. Like Revolution 9 kind of percolates down through the recording sessions and has well, an influence on everything else that happens yeah, in the yeah, album. Yeah, they could do any different kind of thing and it was going to yeah. fit because yeah. it was going to culminate it's going to culminate in, in this crazy crazy in, thing in, in this thing. yeah and i yeah. you know i think you know the the criteria for for double album is not necessarily that it have big hit songs on it uh it's to present 
a portrait of the artist yeah. or artists in this case that is like you already know the artist yeah like nobody well you know Nellie Mackay did but that's she cheated her first <laughs> album was a double album yeah. it's it's so short it could fit on one CD yeah but but the idea is you know people know what you basically are and now you can go in this direction and in this direction and backwards and forwards and sort of expand the idea of what you are what you are what you are doing yeah everything about you you can go you can you can make yourself bigger uh known to people as something larger yeah and that's what i think uh, you know there's there's every kind of everything on this album so let's just talk a little bit about the history of it because I think it's kind of interesting because so we know they started Revolution One, went really long, cut off part of it, decided to turn that into into Revolution Nine, and so it was a conscious decision to make this kind of music con concrete song, and so it was basically just John and Yoko working on it mostly though. George and Ringo went to the states. They were there for like two weeks, and while they were away, John put together a bunch of sound effects tapes and stuff like that. He was, Doing stuff, so he did. He had a bunch of uh, he did twelve twelve effects tapes that he made. One, most of them are called various, but he had some that were called Vickers Poems, Queen's Mess, Come Dancing Combo, Organ Last Will Test, Neville Club, Theater Outing, and Applause TV Jingle. Not all of them were used in Revolution Nine. Some were used for uh, a uh, theatrical version of in uh, in his own right that uh, their friend Victor Spinetti, who was an actor in Help and Hard Day's Night and Magical Mystery Tour, had done this stage version of, of Lennon's book. And so Lennon made some sound effects tapes for oh, it okay. as well. But some of those were folded into the into Revolution 9 as well. And then when they did the final session for Revolution 9, Paul was away. Paul had gone to the States. So Paul wasn't even present when they did like the big mix for Revolution 9. And Revolution 9 was kind of like when they did uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. Lennon basically took over all of Abbey Road Studios. Every every control room was, it was under his command. And all the technicians and anyone else they could rope in all had to sit with their pencils to keep the tension on the loops, you know. So everyone's sitting by these recording machines with loops running through them with pencils, keeping them taut. And Lennon was in the control room. Him and Yoko were in the control room, and they basically played the mixing desk like uh, like a keyboard, and brought in the various sounds. And so now people have uh, taken the time to go through and try to decipher. So uh, Mark Lewison did in in uh, the complete Abbey in the complete uh, recording sessions. He went through and he found some of them, and other people have identified things too. So there is. These are some of the loops and effects that are, are all put into the song. George Martin saying, Jeff, put the red light on, which has been heavily echoed, and so it's played rep repeatedly throughout the song. There's a choir supplemented by backwards violins. There's a symphonic piece that's been chopped up and played backwards. A brief extract of the orchestral overdub for A Day in the Life, repeated over and over. There's a backwards mellotron played by John. There's miscellaneous symphonies and operas. So some of them have been identified. There's like uh, Rayfon Williams' motet, Oh, Clap Your Hands. The final chord from Sibelius' Symphony Number no. 7. The finale of Schumann's symphonic studies backwards. Others are uh, brief portions of Beethoven's choral fantasy, a song called The Streets of Cairo, and an Arabic song by Fareed al-Atrash that's played. It comes in near about the five-minute mark. There's also an oboe horn duet which is very obvious that one i think a reverse and i think that could be the mellotron actually a reversed electric guitar and a backward string quartet and then what you're saying there's a recording of american football crowd american football game shouting hold that line block that yeah, kick yeah. and then the most well-known 
part of it is the repeating number nine voice, which actually came from taped examinations for the Royal Academy of Music. They were taped at Abbey Road and stored there, the tapes. And so Lennon took one of these tapes, I don't know why, but took it, found it, and took the number nine from it and used that as this repeating motif throughout the song. And then John and George read out various lines of prose that stood on the studio floor and yelled out and shouted out uh, that were also faded in and out. So among John said things like personality complex, onion soup, economically viable, industrial output, financial imbalance, the Watusi, the twist, and then these are very clear near the end. Take this, brother. May it serve you well. All George contributed was El Dorado. And then both John and George whisper, there ain't no rule for the company freaks six times near the end of the song. Yeah, so it's like I just find like it's just superbly programmed because we just come to this that last three parts of it, like you say, and you became made it even better for me by saying that the children, the adults are doing what the children want them to do, and then we come to this crazy kind of backwards world of Revolution Nine, and when all seems hopeless and incomprehensible, we come to like the most Hollywood song the Beatles ever did. It's like this, it's like a song from Snow White or something, which John Lennon loved those songs through it because his mom sang them for him. And so, yeah, it would just come to, to good night and this sort of really touching send off, you know, to the whole well, it's album. It's very schmaltzy and it shouldn't work. It probably wouldn't work if it just came at the end of a bunch of songs. Yeah. But it sure works after that. That's right. And the, yeah. the lushness of it, you know, like, you know, I, I think when, uh, like later when uh, Phil Spector put the orchestra on the long and winding road, yeah. there was that precedent that yeah. they had done something orchestral and schmaltzy. So yeah. it wasn't totally out of, you know, uh, he wasn't totally pulling it out of his ass or anything. <laughs> Actually, you know, like mentioning all of that, you uh, uh, it does suggest another reason why they put that little bit of Paul doing, you know, can you take me back where I came from? Yeah. Is the only thing he's got on that side is uh, honey pie. Yeah. So side mm. four is just that and nothing. Yeah. If, well, you, if you don't have George, that. George so and John. I, so yeah. maybe you went, can't, can't we add some little bit of me singing <laughs> so that I'm on there? So, it's cause, possible. Because Good Night, of course, was uh, John's. Yeah, it was John's, John's thing, with Ringo so, singing, yeah. You know. Yeah. And yeah, John asked for, once again, it was written as a lullaby for Julian. That's what, how, how he originally sang it. And then, uh, and I think he intended it for Ringo to sing. Because oh, okay. Ringo needed a song. It was two record discs, or two disc sets, so they needed Ringo's song on both, on both discs. And well, so... Yeah, Ringo wasn't really involved with Revolution 9. No. So it's no. also a reminder that... Beatles. Yeah, all, the, all Beatles. the other Beatles are gone now. Class <laughs> Beatles stand uh, is, is Ringo. That's kind of it, too. It, Paul disappears. Then we have John, John and George. They're gone. And then Ringo is the last one whispering goodnight to us. And apparently in the rehearsals for it, because John and Ringo rehearsed it just with acoustic guitar, Ringo would say things like, come on, children, it's time to toddle off to bed. We've had a lovely day at the park, and now it's time for sleep. Like so little, he had these little preambles for it that I guess ended up not being used. Because it was never intended for for any other instruments to be in it but the orchestral instrumentation. And and John specifically asked George Martin to create the most schmaltzy, like a real cheesy piece. That's what he wanted. And so so, uh, George gave him what he wanted. It it is part of Revolution 9. I think it is in a way. Oh, that's interesting. No, I think it is. Yeah, I think all three of those songs all form a suite. I think they were intended that way. When you hear Revolution 9, you either reject it or you try to make sense of it. Yeah. So, or you let good night 
carry you past well, it. Well, it's just a bunch of noise unless <laughs> yeah. you can, you know. So, yeah. so yeah, you you do come to see good night as not this objectionable schmaltzy thing. Yeah. Sort of like you know putting some ointment on the uh, <laughs> some salve on the wound. On the wound. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, it, it was actually a smaller orchestra than was used for Hey Jude because that was a thirty-six piece. This was only a twenty-six piece piece, but but uh, Martin orchestrated it in such a way that it really sounds big. And same with the choir. The choir is only eight people: four four girls and four guys, or four boys, as they were called in the business. Mm-hmm. You didn't have men and women singing in choirs; just boys and girls. And so, but he takes those eight voices and he makes them into a really big choir. Like it sounds really big when they when they actually for the actual piece. A good night isn't really something that's. Um, you know, it's it's not something they didn't put it on uh, that love songs compilation. Yeah, it's not something that gets anthologized. It's something that is. It's too closely connected to well, that it's, end it's, of the song. Well, it's completely rooted in its existence as being the end of the Beatles' yeah. White Album. Could you, you could take it this, out of this, and it's you weird. can see the same yeah. about yeah. Cry Baby Cry. And when, the other interesting thing about the end of it is we forgot to mention is that in between Cry Baby Cry, John. Paul singing is we have a little moment where Alistair Taylor is talking to George and Apo- George Martin, the producer, and apologizing for forgetting the claret. So even George Martin gets a little bit of a of a look in there before the before we go into Revolution Nine. You hear that better on the uh, mono. That is clear on the mono. Yeah, it is. That's one thing that's clear on the mono. Uh, just mixed a little better. Uh, one thing I read that was interesting was that the mix the the stereo remix for. Revolution 1 and Revolution 9 was 330 minutes of, of mix time to get those two songs. And I imagine most of it went to Revolution 9 because you have that, like, the, the number 9 panning across and back and forth on the number. So it's number 9 and it jumps to the one side. Number 9 jumps to the other side. Number nine. So it's just, yeah, a fat ma- all and the panning. And if you play it and, backwards, it's Turn Me On, Dead Man. Sure. It sounds totally like it. Number 9, Turn Me On, Dead Man. It sounds who... Where you know, because the T in the number nine. So well, obvious. I, well, I don't. I mean, I, I listened to it at the time because you could do that. Just yeah. put the record on and sure. turn it yeah. with your hand and listen. And you know, yeah, I guess maybe. Well, if someone tells you something sounds like something, you will hear it. Well, so. that's the thing. Yes. That's, yeah, that's what it is. It's there, kind of a there's tricky. a song. It's fun to smoke marijuana. Yeah. There's a guy, uh, Bill Lloyd, who does sort of. Beat, his music sort of Beatlesque, yeah. uh, but in the '90s he did an album called uh, "Standing on the Shoulders of Giants," and the, the last song on it is called "Turn Me On, Dead Man." So, in Good. fact, there's a few. Uh, there's another song called uh, "Doctor Robert's Second Prescription." That's yeah. another song in there. Beatle there you fan. go. He's obviously a Beatle fan. So after "Good Night," was it done? Even though "Good Night" was recorded like the fourth or fifth song in the in the in the actual sequence of songs. No, because then the Beatles had the single longest session of their career. An actual 20, 24 hours it took them to sit down, George Martin, uh, John, and Paul. Ringo was gone. Ringo had fl- flown to Sard- Sardinia for vacation with his family, so he was gone. That's where he wrote Octopus's Garden. Um, and then George flew to Los Angeles, so it was just Paul, just John and Paul left with George Martin and I guess Chris Thomas and, and Ken Scott and John John Smith, the uh, or Richard Smith, whoever the guy, the other guys who are, and so they just sat down and then they they had to take thirty one songs and fit them onto a record in some sort of coherent way that was pleasing to listen to and there wasn't just a jumble, and so you know they did follow George Martin's uh, tried and true method of uh, um, you know strong song at the beginning, what he called a pot boiler, and then you finish with a song that cannot be followed for the end of the side. So you end up with things like uh, 
guess glass onion closes side side one or long long lawns closing no, side uh, side two julia happiness is a warm oh sorry yeah happiness is a warm gun sorry yes yeah. that's yeah that's totally happiness is a warm gun yeah, it's impossible to follow that song it's so great well each side was was conceived julia. as as a separate thing yeah so they took bunches of songs and, and yeah, that's and, that's exactly what they did. Yeah, first like side three, a lot of the heavy songs ended up on that one. So like Helter Skelter and Your Blues, and everyone's everybody's got something to hide. Ended up on that one, and then they kind of grouped the animal songs in kind of a jokey way on side two, and yeah, and so then side four had to be the way it was because you had to have that three block song ending. So yeah, no, it was a, quite a quite a, uh... and then there were songs that were being considered as well. We talked about Not Guilty. It was considered for the album, and so was uh, What's the New Mary Jane. Both of them were considered. Probably not that seriously by Paul, but very seriously by John. John very seriously wanted What's the New Mary Jane on, on the White Album. He was very unhappy that it was left off. Because to him, that was a step forward. That was an advancement on, on what was happening in rock music, you know? And, uh, yeah, so it was, it's quite, uh, it was quite the... And then also, like Sgt. Pepper, there's no gaps between songs. They're all edited together. They either flow into each other, or in some way they match. There's like a match between them. It's uh, amazing. It's an amazing album. So we've got before we wrap up, you've got you brought a list with you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, let's do that quickly. Yeah. Okay. Here, here. Why, why, why quickly? Yeah. Why, why start now? Why start now? Yeah. Well, hey, we're in a bit of a rush right now. <laughs> so here, here's the definitive list of the top ten double albums of all time. Can I? Can I? And it's can definitive. I guess, can I guess some of the songs oh, on it? Okay. Number one, just okay. to. Nope. Just to the get to that no. first is the <laughs> Beatles White Album. Okay. Oh, so really, it's it's the rest of the top ten, uh, <laughs> and I'm not, you know, because people are going to expect me to say certain things, and I'm not going to. Oh, uh, this is bad because I was I was thinking Sign of the Times. Well, it's it's on there. There's like an honorable mention list. Oh, okay. And the the criterion is, uh, you know. Uh, Anybody who's got this far listening to this will probably know what my criteria is. <laughs> but it just should represent okay. the group in some way. Okay. okay. All right. So, okay, number 10 from 1979, Fleetwood Mac, Tusk. Okay, good album. Okay. Number 9 from 1972, February, Excellent. Todd Rundgren, oh. Something Anything. Oh, that's a great album. Number 8 from 1975, also February, Led Zeppelin, Physical Graffiti. Hmm. It's okay. Number seven. <laughs> These are unassailably accurate in every way. My, I, Number physical seven. Graffiti, I will always remember the Playboy review, which was that it sounded like a band playing in a trunk being dragged down the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. It's okay. a good description, isn't it? Number seven from November 1970, Derek and the Dominoes, Layla. Okay. All right. Number six from August 1968. Earlier in the year from the Beatles White Album. Yeah. Can you guess? August 9th, earlier than the Beatles album? It's a double album that came out earlier than the Beatles yep. album. It's not Eric Burden and the Animals. Nope. Well, they're, they're, theirs was terrible. <laughs> okay. Love is terrible. <laughs> yeah. um, that's why I was uh, saying Wheels of Fire by Cream. Oh, okay. That's all right. An album so good. You could actually buy the studio album separate, but yeah. the live album has Crossroads on it. Mm -hmm. So as far as expressing the band. Yeah. Number four from 1966, Blonde on Blonde, Bob Dylan. That's a great album. About that. I'm with you there. That's that's over two years earlier. Okay. Uh, okay, that's number four. Number three. Oh, oh I skipped over. Uh, uh, number six was Wheels of Fire. Yeah. I number went five. to number four, which Oops. was Bob Dylan, number five. Blonde on Blonde. I skipped over number five from 1969, May, Tommy by The Who. Okay. Number yeah, give three. You that one. Give you that one. Exile on Main Street from 1972, Rolling yeah, Stones. Good album. 
And number two, which is now, number one, it's basically a, one it's, yeah, yeah. it's yes. basically a single album with two more songs All on right, it. Try and guess this one, Dave. It, any, and I'll tell you, it's oh, from sorry. it's from October uh-huh. 1968. And it's a double album. And it's a double album. Oh, I already failed in the cream one, so uh, such, it would be what's such a double. It's Jimi oh, Hendrix, Electric Ladyland. Exactly. <laughs> such a great double album that when you the two records, side one and yeah. side four, were on one platter, and yeah. side two and three, so that you could stack them on yeah. your thing. Because I have that he too. wanted you to hear that in that order. Yeah. So cool. it's a great, it's a great album. I'll yeah, give guys, you that one. This has been a great dress rehearsal. All right. And uh, let's start recording now. Let's do. Right. Let's do it for uh, real, let's guys. Do it for real. Let's, let's knock one out. Uh, hey everybody, uh, we're at the end of our show. Uh, the longest show ever. It's the longest. It's not just our longest show. It is actually the longest podcast that has ever been. <laughs> it's you, the Beatles White Album of Beatles White Album podcast. That's right. That's right. And what these guys don't know is, I'm actually going to cut up the whole show and then just put it randomly together yeah. with mixes of Please. instrumental tracks, orchestra, orchestral. David and Things, I have gone opera. to America already, yeah, so you you've got the place to yourself. <laughs> you can do whatever I want. I don't know what we're doing. I think we might be doing uh, a dinosaur show. We might be doing a little of that. Sure. Number 10, number 10, <laughs> number 10. If you, uh, you know, we've said a lot. Uh, we would love to hear from you. As we mentioned before, we have a website, yes. sneakydragon.com. Mm-hmm. That's the website for our other podcast, but that's also where we keep all of our uh, Completely Beatles uh, episodes. Yes. Uh, we have message boards uh, there, so please uh, let us know what you think. If you've got any questions, corrections, anything along yep. those lines. If you disagree with that list you just heard, as Dave does, it you can't know, be, argued with. It can't be argued with, so just come there and agree. It doesn't have Prince's Sign of the Times on it. So just nope. come come to that message board and high-five us. Uh, we're also <laughs> on Facebook, as, as you are, and Sneaky Dragon is on Twitter. doesn't have the clash, Lennon Calling. There you go. Ah. Uh, that's you know that's just forget about. That's it. for our forget clash it. cast. Uh, and David, why don't you wrap things up? Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And like like Ian was saying, please write to us on our website or go to the Facebook page, or you can tweet us at sneaky uh, underscore dragon. We appreciate that as well. We'd love to hear your comments, even your criticisms and uh, questions. Sorry, we haven't been too responsive on the website. We just went through a really busy uh, couple of weeks. We were at two different comic conventions and getting ready for those. Took a lot of time, so we do. We will respond. And usually, we're better, we're more responsive. And we so. do appreciate everything you say on um, iTunes as well. That's right. We really appreciate when you, that. When you yeah. Put a little ranking on there. It helps people to find out about the show. Mm-hmm. So we, we appreciate and, that. And it brings a little tear to our eyes. So thanks for listening to this week's Completely Beatles. Or I should say this episode of Completely Beatles. And uh, next time we're going to be doing Yellow Submarine. I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. And that's mm-hmm. that's He's... it. That's it. The other guy left. <laughs> he left the room already. <laughs> David M. Uh, check out anything that says no fun. Even if it's unrelated to his band. Just look up, yeah, look up no things fun. that are no fun yeah. online and see, you know. I don't know if that's a good idea. No, that's probably not a good idea. It's not a good idea to just randomly look for anything online. But, you know, ch- uh, check them out. Uh, do you actually have a website that uh, they should go to or anything like that? Uh, well, on uh, I have Twitter, David Matichuk, M-A-T-Y-C-H-U-K. I have one follower, and he's sitting across the desk from me. <laughs> but I haven't made any effort. So. Yeah. There you go. And on I, uh, well, I, I guess, uh, I guess uh, YouTube, David Matichuk, no fun. There's a whole bunch of stuff on there. Yeah, yeah. we'll try we'll try linking to something on sure. our page. We'll link it. All right. Uh, sorry, I, I interrupted your wrap up. That's fine. Bring it home. Bring it home. Well, I, I think I already did. So I'll just say it one more time. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> Good night. Sleep tight. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,